Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Okay, so Steve, I have a theory about late 20th century rock music Ooh. that I've used in a couple places. I don't think I've said it on this podcast, but I've used it a couple times in things I've written. This is a very dramatic opening, by it the is, way. It is, yes. I have a We're theory going... about 20th century rock music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going for it. We're yeah, going this, for, uh, this is the, a momentous the, moment on our show. The tour is almost over, so we're swinging for the fences. Oh my God. Lay it on me. My theory is that all of late 20th century rock music can be traced back to two bands that both called themselves the Warlocks in 1966. Now, those two bands are, of course, the Grateful Dead, the subject of this podcast. The second band is the Velvet Underground, who also called themselves the Warlocks when they first formed around 1966. Now, both bands had to change their name pretty quickly because there was yet another band called the Warlocks that had gotten there first. But I've always loved this factoid of music history uh, that the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead Two bands that, on the surface at least, would seem very, very different, chose the same name, at least initially. And why this explains all of 20th century rock music is that I think the different directions that the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead took rock music after changing from the Warlocks to their eventual final name kind of spawns everything that comes after. So the Velvet Underground timeline is it inspires down the line punk, it inspires indie rock, it inspires all these like sort of subgenres of rock that incorporated experimental music into, you know, more straightforward rock and roll roots, uh, whereas the Grateful Dead took things in the other direction, still in incorporating experimental music, ex incorporating, you know, jazz principles of improvisation, but launching the jam band scene, of course, influencing Americana and alt country. Eventually, by the 90s, you have these two worlds of rock music that are 
closer than you might think, I think, sonically, but at least socially, we're completely in opposition. So we're both kids of the 90s. Pretty much you either liked punk, grunge, alternative rock, or you liked Grateful Dead hippie music. Like, not too many people liked both. But the fact is, you could trace both of those lineages back to these two bands that called themselves the same name. And in fact, as we're going to talk about in this show, I shared the same stage on, I believe it's three different dates. Uh, one of which we will hear from in today's show. When you started in on this theory, I thought you were going to include a third band that was called the Warlocks, which is ZZ Top. Oh, that's right. They were also called the Warlocks in the 60s, or there was a version of them that was called the Warlocks. And if you include ZZ Top, it makes your theory even stronger because now you have the South being included here because... You have the Dead on the West, you have the Velvet Underground on the East. In ZZ Top, that Texas blues thing, obviously a big influence on Southern rock. You know, they're coming out at around the same time as the Allman Brothers. They predate Leonard Skinnerd. So that's a big part of the rock tree as well. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. I think you got to put the ZZ Top, though, on your, on in your, like, your Warlocks tree, and that, I think, makes it even stronger in terms of bands called the Warlocks explaining the history of late 20th century rock music. Yeah. And also, you know, ZZ Top bringing fuzzy guitars into rock and roll, uh, right. as well as long beards into rock and roll, which is also a very important part of, of, of this conversation. <laughs> and uh, and sharp-dressed men. And uh, what was the model of car in that video? Like the uh, the Eliminator car? Like the yeah. like red I don't know what I'm not. A I'm not a car person. guy. I don't know what it was. Fancy ZZ Top car. No, I would argue too that like Eliminator in that era of ZZ Top is like it's almost like industrial, like dance rock, because <laughs> they were using so heavy oh, yeah. on like '80s drum machines and stuff. So that covers a whole other swath of uh, late. 20th century uh, rock music. Absolutely. There's there's a line, a weird line from Eliminator to like Nine Inch Nails, I think. You know, there there's that other, there's another band called the Warlocks that came out, I guess that would have been the late 90s, psychedelic right. band, are you familiar with They were kind of like a stoner metal band, right? Well, not so much metal, they were more of just like a space rock band. They have a record, I believe it's called Rise and Fall. That's a really good record. They're an interesting band. I don't know how deliberate this was, but they sound like a band where it was like, okay, we're going to merge the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead in one band. Yeah. And we're going to call ourselves the Warlocks. And I don't know if they were aware that Velvet Underground and Grateful Dead were also called the Warlocks. That would be a brilliant conceptual gambit if they did. I yeah. never saw it in interviews with them when they talked about that. But And I mean, I feel like if we're talking about the modern indie jam scene that you and I are both into... It right. seems like a lot of bands' aesthetic is taking the dead and the Velvet Underground and putting them together. And yeah, because now it, you're right. Like back then, I don't think there was a lot of overlap in fan bases. You know, even up into the '90s. But right. now I feel like there there actually is quite a bit of overlap. Maybe not so much on the dead side, but I feel like people our age that love the Velvet Underground tend to also like the dead, or at least more so now than maybe was true in the past. Yeah, absolutely. One of the places where I had used this theory before is when I wrote about the Day of the Dead compilation, which came out several years ago now, which was all indie rock artists covering Grateful Dead music. And I talked about how even though these two uh, lineages had gone their separate ways for the 40 years after these bands uh, existed, they were coming back together, in part because rock music has sort of narrowed as far as its demographic today. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I think Today, it's not controversial at all to like both, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a great thing for fans of both music, because 
while I love both of these bands a lot, I think, you know, the dead could have taken something from the Velvet Underground and the Velvet Underground could have taken something from the dead. But it's funny because like, as we were talking about fans of the bands probably wouldn't have gotten along in the nineties. Well, the bands themselves did not get along <laughs> when they played together in 1969. And uh, one of the shows we're going to talk about today is sort of infamous uh, in that regard. Uh, so they, they, they had a double bill. It, it, it wasn't even clear who was the headliner on these nights in April of 1969. Two shows uh, in Chicago at either the Electric Theater or Kinetic Playground, depending on which source you trust as for the name of the venue. You can't really find anything. You can't find the Grateful Dead talking about the Velvet Underground. I think it, they were like kind of beneath them. <laughs> I mean, the Velvet Underground were not a... Uh, successful or popular band uh, like the Dead were in the late 60s. So I think the Dead played with a lot of bands in the 60s and they didn't really remember the Velvet Underground one way or another. Uh, but you can find a lot, uh, some interviews. Yeah, these are like, you know, fly-by-night band. Yeah, no one's like remember. Zero Hit Wonders. Yeah, yeah. Some, some some creepy creepy people from New York, basically. It's yeah. probably the impression they left. Just like uh, these Warholian speed freaks, you know, that wear sunglasses <laughs> exactly. indoors. You know, just pretentious yeah. people. I'm sure they were not friendly, yeah. But people have asked the Velvet Underground about the Dead. And there's a great, on the Dead Essays blog... You can find a, there's a whole post about the Velvet Underground and Grateful Dead and where they intersected. The guy there, Light Into Ashes, collected some interviews of Velvet Underground talking about the dead. The, there's a whole lot of trash talk. I'll, I'll pick out the best one, probably, which is Lou Reed saying, I can get off understanding the kick it was to play Love Light, but they're amateur. They can't play. Jerry's not a good guitar player. It's a joke. And the airplane is even worse, if that's possible. <laughs> so, I mean, all right. We we tend to we come down pretty hard on people that criticize Jerry. I think well, we, Steve Miller, Steve Miller, Steve Miller, even Keith list. Richards, Keith Richards. Yeah. We slapped on the wrist for his his thoughts about. I, I understand where yeah. Keith is coming from because it's just a totally. He's much more of a direct. He's not going to jam a lot in songs. Right. So I understand his aesthetic. Lou Reed is an interesting case because on one hand you can understand like why he would be suspicious of this band from Northern California, right. but if you listen to live Velvet Underground stuff from 1969 and there's quite a bit of it out there it doesn't sound that different from the dead i mean they're they're doing something similar to the dead and they're jamming in a similar kind of way where there's a lot of repetition going on and you could if you're a detractor of it say that well they're just playing the same thing over and over again and uh, there's not a lot of technical skill here certainly i mean i love lou reed as a guitar player but certainly jerry garcia is more technically proficient than lou reed is yeah, uh, guitar. I mean, the, one of the great things about Lou Reed is his very primitive technique. Yeah, percussive almost. Great rhythm guitar player. It, it, it's it's such a great gut level. And yeah, I can listen to Lou Reed go chinka chinka for like eighteen minutes, twenty minutes, yeah. and I'm I'm riveted when he does that. But you know, having said that, for him to call out the Dead <laughs> for doing something very similar, you know, it's a very Lou Reed thing to do. A uh, right. very crabby, grouchy take yeah from, from i would Louis. be disappointed if he had a a sunnier take on the dead right yeah, exactly <laughs> like <laughs> it almost is like perfect that he hates the dead like it, it just makes sense in the logic of the world yeah like what what if what if lou reed was like yeah man jerry and i we smoked a joint <laughs> we just talked for like three hours it was such good vibes yeah he's a kind dude you know, well, then we, then we kicked the hacky sack around. It was great. You know, like you don't want to hear that from Lou Reed. No, it's funny. One of the rumors uh, in the comments on that Dead Essays post is that Lou Reed actually got dosed the second night of the Chicago stand. It's a rumor. 
but it's also like a, a sort of a probable rumor <laughs> because this is right in the era where the dead and their crew more so were just dosing everybody like as much as they could backstage. There was somebody telling a story that all the food on the backstage spread was somebody was going around with a spray bottle with LSD uh, and spraying the food. And then Lou Reed took some and kind of freaked out and, and, and took off early because the Velvet Underground played a very short set on second night of this run and that i think they were supposed to come back for another set but they did not the dead just played straight through the end of the night so i don't know if that happened or not but it you know it could have happened so they definitely did not smoke a joint and have a good time together if anything they like induced a panic attack in lou reed by dosing him well lou definitely has a facade that he liked to put up and he could be very reactionary to people yeah I was just thinking about uh, the story I heard recently from Jackson Brown. He was on Mark Maron's podcast, <laughs> and Jackson Brown was talking about how you know, he got to know Lou Reed because Jackson Brown had some involvement with Nico. Of course, Nico covered a bunch of Jackson Brown songs early on, including These right. Days, most famously. Um, and he told the story about how like Lou Reed, like when he met him, had just gone to, I think he went to the human being in Golden Gate Park, like the first one hmm. in like early 67. And he said that he had a great time. Like he, he thought it was amazing. Like this is what he told Jackson Brown and then Jackson Brown related 45 years later or 55 years later. I mean, you would never think of like Lou Reed <laughs> hanging out with like all these hippie people uh, right. and having a great time. But, you know, I think... I mean, he, he contained multitudes, <laughs> you know, to quote Bob Dylan. And that was probably a side of himself that he didn't really want to, like, put into his persona. Right. Uh, but he was, you know, he came out of the 60s. I'm sure that there was something very liberating about that in the moment. And maybe he got sick of it later on. Right. The interactions between these two bands, I think, are, are always really fascinating. If you could only see one band in 1969 specifically, yeah, who would you pick, Velvet Underground or The Grateful Dead? So, I think I'm going to go Velvet Underground, and here's why. Uh, it's in part because the Grateful Dead in 1969 are very well documented, with very good tapes, uh, and you can hear a lot of shows. But the Velvet Underground, not so much. There's been a few live albums that have come out. The Matrix tapes is from later in 69 and is very good. There's the Quine tapes, which are also from 69, but those are like pretty bad audio quality. I think it would be more interesting to me to see what the Velvet Underground was like in 1969. Just because I feel like I have a pretty good idea of what the dead were like in 1969, but the Velvets are a little bit of a, a mystery to me. I'm going to go one step further because I'm also going to say the Velvet Underground. I think the Velvet Underground was a better band in 1969 specifically than the Grateful Dead were. I do not think that this is the peak of the dead. I think yeah. the dead, once we get into the 70s, that's where I feel like they really hit their stride. because, And we're going to get into this in this episode. Because I have some issues with this album. And we're going to disagree on some things. I think songwriting-wise, they're not there yet. They have great yeah. energy and aggression, and I love that about 60s Dead. But the material is not there. And I think on this album in particular, it's a pretty big minus in, in parts, like when they're leaning on their 60s era songs. Whereas the Velvet Underground were writing amazing songs. They were also jamming incredibly. Every Velvet Underground show, I feel like from this time, has like a half hour Sister Ray at the end. Yeah, at is, least. Yeah. And there are, you're right, there's not as much documentation, but there are some concerts you can hear out there. If you get the uh, box set version of the third record, the self titled Velvet Underground record, there's the, the, the live at the Matrix 
concert mm-hmm. on there, which is amazing, and that has like a 36 minute Sister Ray, uh, where you know Lou Reed talking about someone sucking on his ding dong, doing <laughs> <laughs> drone jams forever. It's amazing, and there's also the fact too that like the Velvet Underground window is so much smaller. You know, if we're in this time machine, I'd be like, let's see the Velvet Underground '69. We'll go see the Dead '70 because Velvet Underground. Right. I mean, Lou Reed was out of the band, I guess. I guess he left in like early 71, so he still would have been in the band in 70, but I'd still want to see the dead in 70. I won't go see them at the Fillmore in February of 70 for sure. Having said that, we've been tuning for a long time. I think we should get to the show here. Well, I think the short answer to this question is you take your time machine, you dial it up for April 26, 1969, and you see both bands. Let's do that right now. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit one million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. Welcome to 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. I'm Steve. I'm Rob. And uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Dick's Picks 26. This is two shows. It's uh, April 26, 1969 in Chicago. And then the following night, April 27th in Minneapolis. We're back in the Midwest, baby. That's right. This is the Rob and Steve tour. If we existed in 1969, we'd be doing a a home-and-home series here. Yeah, man. This is like, it's your town. Chicago, it's my town, Minneapolis, and uh, yeah, we're 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 not going to be talking about the East Coast for for once on this show. We're not talking about like you know, War Memorial arenas uh, in <laughs> upstate New York or Connecticut. No. We're going to be talking about these like kind of cool, good working class or uh, yeah, midwestern versions of the Fillmore in 1960. Yeah, like these kind of fly-by-night, freaky, uh, fly-by, yeah, these venues that were up for a while, they're long gone, I think, both of them by now. Yeah. And even the buildings might have been torn to the ground and turned into, like, Jamba Juices. 
uh, <laughs> or, or whatever. I'm sure it's something like that. But yeah, we're we're, we're here in 1969, and uh, Dick's picks 26. And I'm going to be up front here. This this might be a contentious episode. Are, yeah. are, are you and I going to be because you know we outline these episodes, so we're making notes about the songs, and there's more disagreement than usual about this album. Yeah, I know this is uh, the first one in a long time. Uh, I can't even think of the last time we really were this at odds. So we'll see how it plays out. But in, in the notes, at least there was some some sparring, a little behind the scenes. But yeah, I I, I like this one quite a bit, and Steve is a little more skeptical. So uh, yeah. you're going to hear some uh, get your debating gloves on because we'll. Uh, have some disagreement this time. Yeah, this is not my favorite Dick's Picks. I'm going to be upfront about that. I mean, we've got 35 minutes of Love Light in this <laughs> album, which is a yeah. quarter of the album, almost as much as we had 38 minutes of drums in Dick's Picks 25. <laughs> I almost would rather have tw- 38 minutes of drums than 35 minutes of Love Light. That, I'm, I'm going to throw that out there. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's long crazy, Steve. Love Light. And I'll say this, you know, and I alluded to this in our tuning segment, but the thing I love about 60s Dead is their aggression and their energy. Mm -hmm. You know, they never played harder and faster than they did in the 60s. And that was the side of the dead that we saw or that we heard in Dick's Picks 22, which I love. That might be my favorite Dick's Picks that we've done this season. Certainly it would be among my favorites. What I don't like about this era is the songwriting. They, they hadn't leveled up yet in that regard. This is right before Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which to me ushers in the songwriting era of The Grateful Dead, like when Garcia Hunter and Weir Barlow, those songwriting teams, just start turning out these timeless songs that you can play with a band, you can play an acoustic guitar, some busker can play the songs and they sound great. We're not there yet. We're still in the 60s. And this is the era like where in lieu of writing songs, they were just throwing a bunch of chord changes <laughs> out, I think basically, and you're more amenable to that than I am. I yeah, I I, I appreciate the idea of it, right? But it's, as music, it sounds dated to me in a way that the songs after this are not going to sound dated. Like a song mm-hmm. like "Loser," "Jack Straw," or right. Casey Jones, or any of the great Grateful Dead songs. They don't sound dated. They sound like timeless American classics. These songs sound dated to me in a way that's not always complimentary to the dead. So that's an right. issue that we're going to hash out in this episode, I think, because you disagree with me on that, I think. Yeah, I th- for all the same reasons that you just cited, I find this era really charming. Of course, I agree that the songwriting in this era is not up to par with the masterful songs uh, that were right around the corner. But I love this peek into the very early days of Garcia and Hunter writing together. And I like this live moment for the dead because... As we talked about a lot, what I, what, what I like the most in a dead show is catching them at a moment of transition. You know, fortunately, the dead were like kind of constantly in moments of transition, at least through the 60s and 70s, which is part of why maybe I'm a little cooler on the 80s and 90s as they were evolving less rapidly. I disagree with that. See, we're disagreeing already because I think yeah, we, yeah. we've heard enough to know that a show in 81 does not sound like a show in 85 or like a show in 89. I know. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about that. But again, that's 81, 85, 89. This is like, in this era, early 69 and late 69 are like completely different animals. The the, the Lake Tahoe band, and a year before this show in 68, is a totally different band than this band in April of 1969. This is like every three to six months, the Grateful Dead were reinventing themselves. And this is catching... 
you know, one of those many reinventions and actually one that I don't think we've heard before because we've had that Tahoe 68 show. We had a late 1969 show, uh, which was, which Dick's Picks was it? It was Dick's Picks 16, was November 69. And then, of course, we've done a bunch of early 70s shows. But this is one that I think we haven't caught. And I, we'll, we'll get into why, you know, I think it's an interesting transition. But yeah, I'm really happy that we now have a Dick's Picks from this specific era because this is capturing one of my favorite eras of the dead and not for the songwriting reasons necessarily but for you know this is right around the time of live dead live dead is probably my favorite grateful dead album this is kind of like an alternate take on live dead which i like a lot i love live dead as well and the parts of this that are most like live dead i like the most but there are other parts Mm -hmm. of this album that are not like live dead that are (laughs) songs that they left behind in the 60s and they were right to do that (laughs) and again i i agree this is interesting but there's some parts of this album that i that were kind of a slog for me that i did not really uh, just as a musical experience it was not great for me so we'll get to that yeah we're gonna have some good fireworks later on let's get to our mailbag segment thank you all for writing in to us and if you want to write us we're at 36 ftv mailbag at gmail.com we could always use more letters we've gotten a lot of good ones um, if i could make one editorial note and this is gonna sound hypocritical coming from me the host of a very long-winded grateful dead podcast <laughs> but some of you write very long letters and we can't read those because they're a little too long we this show would be even longer than it already is so if I could make a modest request, if you could just try to be a little bit shorter, it would make it more likely that we can read your letter in the episode. I don't know, Steve. The fans just want to jam. They want to jam in email form. I understand, but we got a curfew here, man. We got to be out by <laughs> 11 p.m. or the, the heat's going to come in and they're going to throw us out. So, yeah, I'm just saying, keep it a little bit shorter and it would be more likely that we can get you in the episode. So just, just a small note. And I, I acknowledge my hypocrisy by saying this. Because we, we do not impose restrictions on ourselves. We jam all night long. But <laughs> that's the way it's got to be. Do you want to read the first letter? Yeah, I'll take the first one. So uh, this is from Tony. Tony says, hey, Rob and Mitch, was it? While I was browsing at a flea market recently, I chanced to cross a CD copy of the 74 Grateful Dead Greatest Hits comp Skeletons from the Closet. I decided to see what the track list was like, because the dead aren't really a singles band, and it's weird. I feel like a full rundown of the compiler's choices would take an hour plus, but taking a little time to think about it is fun. A few highlights. Intentionally commercial psych single Golden Road. The acoustic barely played live Rosemary. Oh. The Europe 72 version of One More Saturday Night. Mexicali Blues, even though it came out on a Bobby solo album. And an edit of the Live Dead Love Light, cut down for a previous Warner Brothers compilation. All those and the actual hits, too. Anyway, it's a weird cross-section, right? Thanks, as always, for a silky, crazy podcast from Tony. <laughs> wow, yeah. You know, I I can't say I've ever listened to the Grateful... I've never, I, I'm familiar with that album, Skeletons from the Closet. Right. I don't think I've ever listened to it. I just felt like it'd be really, it'd be very weird to listen to a Grateful Dead Greatest Hits album. I'm pretty sure I bought this probably as the first Grateful Dead thing I ever bought. Just because I was, you know, like a 15-year-old. And of course, what are you going to buy first? You're going to buy the Greatest Hits record for the band you're trying to check out. So, but yeah, it is really a weird set of music. I mean, Rosemary is the weirdest one by far. Like, Rosemary is a song that a lot of deadheads probably forget, 
even existed. <laughs> like it's on Oxamaxima, so it's in that same crop of songs that we're going to talk about today. Sort of early, early days of Garcia Hunter collaborations. Uh, Golden Road is a really weird song to appear on there, which the band kind of moved on from it right away. I actually was really psyched to hear them play Golden Road at the Fare Thee Well concert. I thought that was like a really fun thing to excavate. And I think Golden Road is, I mean, it, it it's pretty like stereotypically 60s psychedelic rock, but it's kind of a fun song. Not something I wanted to hear all the time, but it was fun to hear that come back. But it makes sense to have these live versions of songs. And yeah, Mexicali Blues, <laughs> I mean, maybe not the song I would have picked off of Ace, but I guess... You could argue it represents sort of the the country Bob side of the dead. And it's, you know, one of the few that that isn't a cover. What's that one greatest hits album? It has like the black cover. It was like a double disc. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? There was like another Grateful Dead greatest hits album. I think that came out a little bit after this. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? I think I've seen it before. Yeah. It's called The Very Best of the Grateful Dead. No, that's that's the one that's kind of like brownish. Um, Yeah, yeah, there's one that's come out like in the past decade that... You know, it has like touch of gray on it, and is more of a, co- a conventional greatest hits album. Um, oh like, yeah, this is a 2015 one called "The Best of the Grateful Dead." Yeah, but yeah. there's another one that came out, I think, in the 70s or maybe it was early 80s that it had like a black cover. It had like red type, and it was like the Grateful Dead type on it. Yeah, I can't remember what that was called, but I mean, I like the idea of a greatest hits album that isn't just going right down the middle of right. most famous songs, even though. If you are that 15-year-old kid and you're just looking for a good primer on a band, it, it, it maybe isn't the best thing to do. Because you think, like, you know, throw on a live version of Morning Dew, you know, or uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe if you're going to throw on a Bob Weir solo song, why not something from, like, Jerry Garcia's solo record? That album actually has more song. Actually, I, I mean, Ace also has a, a lot of songs that the dead perform, but, you know, you could put, like, Sugary on there or something from yeah. the first Jerry Garcia solo record. I do think the weirdness of Skeletons from the Closet is down to, like, you know, sort of boring record company legal situations because it came out in 74 which is right when the dead left warner brothers to do their own record label right so i think somebody at warner brothers was just like we're gonna we need to milk this band that has left our label just pick you know 12 songs out of a hat basically (laughs) and and put them out and then it also came out i mean i think of it i was actually surprised to be reminded that it originally came out in 74 because to me it feels like a quick cash grab after touch of gray was a hit in the late 80s. And it did come back out on CD in 88. So it sort of seems like Warner Brothers is saying, hey, we, there's this hit band. They recorded Touch of Grey. Touch of Grey was a hit for Arista Records, right? But you could see Warner Brothers saying, we're going to capitalize on this like renewal of interest in the Grateful Dead and throw this sort of cheapo compilation together without having like uh, the taste of a, of a dick or David Lemieux there to, to guide what selections were chosen. So, Well, it's funny because like if you just look at American Beauty as a studio album, I feel like that has almost as many famous songs as this Greatest Hits album. Like, you could just <laughs> give someone American yeah. Beauty and be like, it's a studio album, but it's like a Greatest Hits album. Yeah, right, it's, exactly. it's a great place to get started. So, yeah, I would just say to the kids of the future, yeah, just get American Beauty. Although, I don't know yeah. if they would even buy Greatest Hits albums. They'd go on Spotify and look at, like, a Grateful Dead <laughs> playlist or something. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's where they would go. Yeah, the Greatest Hits album, that's kind of gone away, which is unfortunate. I, I, you know, with The Dead, I wouldn't listen to it. I wouldn't listen to a Greatest Hits album, but I certainly bought Greatest Hits albums a lot when I was a kid, and they do have a, a value. And there's certain bands where 
you just need the greatest hits album, and you don't really need nah. the studio albums. Yeah, no, it would serve a lot of bands' legacy better than like America. Uh, like, like their greatest hits album is is great. History, you sure. know, like the, with the drawings of them. Like, I don't really need any America studio albums, but like, I think that's like one of the best greatest hits albums ever, because mm-hmm. it it sums up their career so well. Or like Gord's Gold by Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> like that's such a gr- although he re- he re-recorded a lot of his songs for that because he had to get around copyright issues for some of his mm-hmm. early solo stuff. Anyway, enough about Gordon Lightfoot. Let's get to our next letter. And this is taking a shot at Rob. So I'm going to read this cuz I like I'm amused when people take shots at you, Rob. <laughs> uh so you're going to get roasted here a little bit. And uh, this comes from a, a writer named Will. And by the way, if you write us a letter, tell us where you're from. We always like to know where people are from. We like to know how big 36 from the Vault Nation is. Rob and Steve. Steve is in parentheses. So this I'm like an afterthought in this letter. He's, he's going <laughs> yeah. right at you. You're just a messenger. Yeah. While I typically have nothing but praise for the podcast and count myself as one of 36 from the Vault's stalwart defenders. A defender? Do we need defenders out there? Apparently. Yeah. I guess uh, if you're calling in to serious radio shows and uh, they're like, what the hell are they, you guys talking about? Uh, that's a reference to our previous episode, by the way. A certain mortal sin was committed in a recent episode. Mortal sin? What are mortal sins again? Aren't those like uh, like you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments? Yeah. That, Usually? It's, it's the most serious of sins, yeah. Okay, so I'm curious to see where this goes. I'm referring, of course, to Rob's comparison... Of 1974 Grateful Dead, a legendary band at the height of its powers, to the Disco Biscuits. (laughs) The Disco Biscuits represent everything music should not be, and uttering their name in the same breath as the dead was not just off base, but unconscionable. I will spare a longer diatribe against them, thank you, Will, and simply assert that I have not heard jam music so uninspiring and devoid of feeling as theirs. This is coming from a Fish fan, by the way, whose music they attempt to imitate, albeit in the limpest conceivable manner. <laughs> Will, taking the Disco Biscuits to the woodshed here. I, by the way, I, well, I'll read the rest of this letter. I, I have something to say about this. I won't go as far as to say this comment made me rethink Rob's entire approach to music <laughs> as he did with Brent's Maramba tones on the vol- Volume 6 Scarlet, but I do consider it an affront to anyone with an interest in preserving the dead's legacy. All that aside, enjoying the podcast and looking forward to the next episode. Will. So he's he's steamed that you compared them to the Disco Biscuits in a very narrow way, I right. should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I will clarify my comments. But first of all, we, of course, share you know the Osiris Network with, with members of the Disco Biscuits who have their own podcast. John Barber, the guitarist from Disco Biscuits, has touchdowns oh, all day, you should, which you should check out. Maybe Will shouldn't check it out, but other listeners should check out. Uh, so, first of all, Will, rude, putting us in a weird spot here, criticizing one of our compatriots of the Osiris Network. Second of all, okay, I, I, I will will clarify the specific, very specific comparison I made between the Grateful Dead and the Disco Biscuits. Actually, I... Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I thought it was 1976 Grateful Dead that I compared to the Disco Biscuits from a few dicks picks ago. Not yeah, that was uh, that was 24, right? Or was that 25? Yeah, that was 24. That was 25, 20, right? We're, we're late in the tour. All the shows are blurring together. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think it's, 76 it's, it's is is dicks picks 24, and dicks picks 23 was 74. 
Okay. I think that's so. Right. The the specific thing I said was reminiscent of the Disco Biscuits was the fact that seventy six Grateful Dead were getting very creative with their set lists and segues. So they were splitting up songs, splitting up you know Help Slip Frank and putting other songs in there, playing just very unexpected but probably preconceived song suites that connected, you know, eight or nine songs together, which is, of course, something that I think the Grateful Dead can be given a lot of, if not all the credit for pioneering in what subsequent jam bands have really run with, including Fish, including the Disco Biscuits to today's crop of, you know, Goose and Twiddle and Pigeons playing ping pong and all of these bands. I personally think that sometimes today's jam bands take it a little too far. Uh, They get a little too frisky with the set lists. The Disco Biscuits did, I would say, some pretty interesting things with it. They would play songs out of order, like they'd play the last section of a song before they played the start of the song, things like that. I like that. I like that about jam bands, that they're creative with their material and they'll break down the songs in interesting ways to their component parts and you know more than anything else they're 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 doing something new with their live show they're not just getting up there they're playing their new album like they are constantly reimagining their material and reconstructing it in new ways the disco biscuits musically are not personally my favorite i saw them in the 90s uh it, it, I, I had a good time at their shows they're not a band that i've really kept track of subsequently they got I think for parts of their time, a little bit too into like the electronic side of jam bandery than I prefer. But I've got nothing personally against the Disco Biscuits, and I'm not really comparing them musically to 70s Grateful Dead. I'm just talking about the structure of the show, which is sort of an innovation that the Grateful Dead originated, and then other bands have taken to extremes many years later. So my take on the Disco Biscuits is that I have never listened to them, so I have no opinion (laughs) at all. I only know their name, the name Disco Biscuits, that is the sum total of my knowledge, and also everything that Rob just said, that's all... All that knowledge he just dispensed. That's what I know about them. So from what you were saying, it sounds kind of interesting. I, I might dig into it. I, I, I also like the idea of being playful with your set list and shuffling things around and or structuring it in a way like where it feels like a one big piece of music, all these songs, the way that they're slotted together. I think that's a great thing about jam bands. I think that's one of the reasons why we're attracted to this because they're doing what most bands don't do. Like most bands that go on stage, they play the same set list every night. And they do that because it's easier to be professional and to have a well-polished stage show if you know what's going to happen one song from the next. But bands that don't do that and are a little more, again, playful, experimental, it's fun. So, you know, yeah, Disco Biscuits, even if they're not your thing, they're not hurting anybody. There's nothing right. uh, egregious about what they're doing. They're just having a good time. Let's be a little kinder out here, you know? <laughs> right, like the bumper bumper sticker says, mean people suck. Yeah, although, again, it's okay to be opinionated, too. We're opinionated on this show. But, you know, we got to draw right. the line on condemning people. You know, you could take issue <laughs> with certain things. Like you said, maybe it's not your favorite kind of music. Yeah. But in the broad strokes, you can still appreciate what they do. So hats off to... Uh, Disco biscuits. And that being said, let's let's get into this Dick's picks, which Steve absolutely hates. <laughs> which is not true. I do not hate this. Don't don't sound like one of our listeners here by right. reducing my take here. Well, well, I mean, let's get into like the background of this show. First of all, th- yeah. this came out on October first, two thousand two. It's the beginning of the postage stamp era, right? Uh, in terms uh, of for the, cover art, yeah, for cover art, where it's like a. Uh, Sort of like a plain manila looking envelope where there's a stamp in the corner that 
says the album title and then they do this thing where it's like a I think it's a postmark. A postmark. There you go. Like where, where it originated from when the you know the the post office of origin does uh, yes. a stamp. So I guess the the concept here is that you know before we were this album was like a lightning bolt. It's being bolted into you uh, from the sky from God. And now we're saying like no we're just mailing it to you. Uh, we're mailing yeah. these things to you. So it's a little less, uh, it feels less heaven sent, I guess. It's a little more utilitarian now in the Dick's Picks era. And we've right. talked about this. This is not my favorite era of art. You know, I feel like the art gets, we're starting to go downhill. Yeah. I'm a red and black purist. I feel like we've been going downhill since red and black at the beginning. Yeah. I like the like the magic carpet era. I thought it was <laughs> still pretty good. Yeah. I like that. The lightning bolt, I liked a little less. And then you had that Dick, Dick Latvala one-off for Dick's Picks 25. Mm-hmm. Not crazy about that cover. But again, I, I love the gesture. I love the idea of it. The execution, not as high on it. Yeah, now we're in the postage stamp era, which is better than what we're going to end up at. Like, the last bunch of Dick's Picks have terrible art. Right. Bottom of the barrel. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like, Do you like the postage stamp? Yeah, I'm not that wild about it either. I guess Devil's Advocate. You know, the Dick's Pick series was originally a mail order series. So I guess it's sort of thematically appropriate that they're, you know, they're like mailing this Dick's Picks to you from Grateful Dead headquarters. The other thing, it kind of reminds me of what was the year that Pearl Jam put out CDs of every show? 2000. Yeah. And they had that, it was similar sort of like bland cover art where it was just like a manila envelope with a stamp on it with the date of the show so it kind of reminds me of that in that it was just like this is just about the music that's inside we're not going to spend too much time differentiating these things we're just going to give you the bare bones and let the music stand for itself so although they're not totally going for that though because the stamp is actually like pretty like ornate pretty Mm -hmm. well drawn out like those those pearl jam bootlegs i think they were emulating like early bootlegs like late late 60s like where you'd go in the record store and it was only like this blank cover with with the thing stamped on it i mean like the live at leeds cover i think that was the basis for the pearl jam thing like true yeah with vetter being a big who fan i think that was probably in his head for that so with these shows we're gonna go back to our standard thing i think of complaining about things that were cut out <laughs> yeah insisting that they would they would have been better off putting some of that stuff in i think especially with that april 26 show yeah so and that's actually the only one that they cut stuff out of you get about half of the april 26 show on this volume and you get all of april 27th which was a, a shorter show it was just one set but yeah the, the entire april 26 show is actually pretty fascinating and you lose i think a significant chunk of what makes it so interesting in this volume they basically take the first half of what is listed online as the first set but I think it was just one continuous, like, two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour set on this night based on listening to the, the full version on Archive. You uh, cut out a couple Pigpen songs. You cut out a couple Bob songs. You cut out an It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Another 33 minutes of Love Light. Sorry, Steve, uh, didn't make the cut. But there's a really, really most fascinating part of this set comes at the end, which is listed as the second set online, but I don't think that's true, uh, is this, like, crazy 40-minute suite which is Viola Lee Blues into Caution, back into Viola Lee Blues, into Feedback, into What's Become of the Baby, a song that does not turn up on very many Grateful Dead set lists, back into Feedback, Feedback Reprise, and then And We Bid You Good Night to send it off for the night. And it is 
so heavy and so out there and so extreme. And what I love about it is, again, the Velvet Underground shared the bill with them this night. The night before, the Velvet Underground had played a big, long set, probably with the big, long Sister Ray. And this part of the April 26th Grateful Dead set almost sounds like their response to the Velvet Underground. It's yeah. like these two bands pushing the limits of what rock music can be. And the Grateful Dead saying, we can do that too. We can be noisy and crazy and experimental just as much as you assholes from New York can be. say like that that sequence is my favorite music from either one of these shows and i would have loved to have basically kicked out most of disc one (laughs) and put that in its place and keep disc two where it is because i think that music it's so powerful and it reminds me of dick's picks 22 it has that energy where it's just them playing aggressive and hard and everything you love about 60s dead and and what they're not going to be later on like they're not going to have that kind of energy later on even when they have more songs and and they're more nuanced in a way and in in many ways a more skilled band they don't have that youthful piss and vinegar that they had in the 60s and you really hear it in that set i also say that along with competing with the velvet underground it should be noted that in the liner notes for dick's picks 26 which are written by owsley which is pretty cool and it must have been that long before he died it was dated 92202 I'm trying to remember, like, when did, I believe he was in Australia when he died, and, like, wasn't he, like, in a motorcycle accident or something like that? Yeah, he did die till 2011, actually, so. Okay, well, uh, okay. It was about a decade later, yeah, but he did, he died in a car accident, like many Grateful Dead family people did. But anyway, he, he writes in here, of that 426-69 show, and I'll just quote from the liner notes, he says, we generally did psychedelics on a Saturday, but I do not remember for sure if it was true this night, but chances are it was. So <laughs> there's a high likelihood that they were also like tripping their asses off and maybe peaking during that part of the show. It's certainly the trippiest part of the mm-hmm. show. I really wish that had made Dick's Picks 26, but you can listen to it on live archive and it sounds great. Yeah. And actually the Violi Blues is on the Fallout from the Phil Zone disc, which came out actually a few years before this Dick's Picks, where Phil picked a bunch of random stuff from the entirety of the Grateful Dead history. I didn't go back and listen to it, so I'm not sure how much of that Violi Blues is on there because it kind of, as I said weaves in and out of caution but yeah go on archive listen to that whole section i would leave disc one in i would have made this part of the set disc two and just done a three disc set uh instead of a two disc set but i I really wish it had come out because this is you know this dicks picks comes out in 2002 which i think is kind of still a few years before the tide started turning on reassessing the grateful dead as not being you know just happy pleasant hippie music but as being a band that did have this darker side this more avant-garde side to their sound even very early on in the late 60s and i think releasing this disc would have maybe 
pushed up the timeline a little bit on that reassessment so that people could hear how crazy the Grateful Dead could get and that they were very much peers of the Velvet Underground and doing and treading similar waters uh, at the same time as the VU was at its sort of darkest. Well, let's dig into like the history that surrounds these shows. This is, uh, of course, the spring of 1969. These shows were recorded about two months after the shows for Live Dead were recorded. And of course, you alluded to that earlier being your favorite Grateful Dead album. And you can certainly hear traces of what you hear on that record in these shows. So you're getting a Dark Star, you're getting the Eleven, you're getting a St. Stephen. The songs that would really be immortalized on, on, on that record, they're still doing at this time. But I think another important thing that informs these shows is that this was a couple months before the release of Axel Maxa, which they had just finished recording, I guess the previous month in March. And they're playing a lot of those songs. And again, I'm going to take a shot here. They're playing songs from that record that I think are not very good. And it's what drags this record down for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that as we're talking here. And I know you're going to disagree with me, but like to me, like when I talk about wanting to get rid of the first disc, it's the sections of that show where they're digging into songs from that record that I really, I, I start to trail off with this album. And I'll just say right here that I don't really care for Oxamoxima as a record. I think something about how they recorded and arranged these songs in the studio makes them sound very cartoony. <laughs> like it, it it just sounds you allude to this in the notes and I think you mentioned it earlier that it sounds sort of cornily right in the wheelhouse of 60s psychedelic rock like like a parody of late 60s summer of love psych rock uh and i would definitely agree with that as far as how they're portrayed on the album but i do like the live versions considerably more and i'm, I'm glad that dick's picks finally got around to including some of the live versions of these songs which were only really played in this narrow little strip of time in 1969 but i think are worth worth hearing sort of in their better live form well, and you you talked about this before about you know the dead going through various changes and like how quick you know they were changing at this time. And we have that Dick's Picks album. Which one is that where they were playing a bunch of Working Men's Dead songs? It's like from late '69. So that's Dick's Picks '16, which was yes. November eighth, nineteen sixty nine, at the Fillmore. And you can already tell that Garcia and Hunter have taken a big step forward <laughs> in their oh, songwriting because yeah. they're playing Casey Jones, they're playing Dire Wolf, they're playing some of the Working Man's Dead material already, and it's it sounds like a world different from doing that rag and uh, Mountains of the Moon and yeah. Cosmic Charlie and stuff I mean, like it's that. Amazing. Yeah, because that's like, you know, that's seven months later. They're already writing these songs that are going to live forever. Like, just, just compare Dire Wolf to, like, Dupree's Diamond Blues. You know, to me, it's like <laughs> they don't even belong in the same ballpark in terms of just songs. Uh, but we'll get into that. Well, the only thing else I want to mention just about The Dead in 69 is that this is the TC era. And he is a very prominent sound on this whole volume. So you've got Tom Constantin playing organ that frees up Pigpen to just sort of be like a roaming occasional vocalist. I'm not quite sure what he did for most of this show, to be honest. Played some percussion instruments, I think. But yeah, so this is like, because it's right after the recording of Live Dead, there's a lot of uh, TC organ on this volume. Yeah, I just imagine Pigpen being freed up to like drink Jack and smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Exactly. Just like be a cool dude on stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's not just singing. Just be a badass yeah. up there. Like, hey, look, at that, <laughs> hey, look at that fucking guy. He's just drinking whiskey all night long. He's like the guy that dances in uh, Mighty Mighty Boston's, except he doesn't dance. He's just there for like attitude. No. He did, yeah, he just like has a cool mustache. Like that's his job <laughs> in the band. 
and yeah. he's very good at it. All right, well, now let's talk about the first venue that they played in, in, in Chicago. The Electric Theater, also known as the Kinetic Playground. Yeah, it's, I, I looked this up. So it started as the Electric Theater, but there was also a venue called the Electric Circus, I think, in New York. And the Electric Circus said, hey, knock it off. That sounds too similar to our venue name. So they renamed themselves the Kinetic Playground. And I found, actually, the flyer for these shows. And it's confusing because at the top it says, The Electric Theater Company Presents... The Kinetic Playground, and then it has The Grateful Dead and Velvet Underground uh, listed as the as these shows. So I'm pretty sure it was called The Kinetic Playground at this point, and like the production company or the booking company was called The Electric Theater Company. So I'm, I'm taking issue with the way Dick's Picks assigns this show to The Electric Theater. Kinetic Playground, I think, is a cooler name anyway. Both very 60s-sounding venues. Yeah. I mean, especially Kinetic Playground sounds very late 60s. In his liner notes, Owsley talks about how he calls this one of the odder venues that they played in this Which period. Which is saying Which, something. Yeah. Exactly. It's definitely saying a lot. And he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about why that's the case. He, he talks about how when they had to load in their equipment, like they couldn't like just like take it up the stairs. There was like this, some sort of like lift that was jerry-rigged where they lowered it from like a window or something and they had to load all their gear. Then like someone like, I don't know if this was a, an electric lift or if there was someone with a grind that they were doing this by hand. But it seemed like it was a little cumbersome getting their gear into the venue. And this was a place that it wasn't open that long, right? I mean, didn't it close like fairly soon after this? It sort of seems like this is the time in American history where every city was latching onto the hippie thing. And in every city, you sort of had like a mini Fillmore. So like hippies in that city were like, we need a cool psychedelic venue to book all the bands between the coasts. And so both the venues we're going to talk about today were sort of the local versions of that in Chicago and Minneapolis. So this was in Uptown Chicago. It was at the corner of Clark and Lawrence. It's now condos, of course, maybe with the Jamba Juice on the lower floor. I'm not sure. But it was only open from 68 to 69. There was a fire, I think, at the end of 69 and they had to shut down. And then it was open again in 72, 73, very briefly until it got shut down, probably for noise reasons or drug reasons there was a kinetic playground that came back in the 2000s but that is also closed and wasn't in the same building as this one but while it was open the dead played there a lot they played there three times in 1969 they were always two night stands they played the end end of january into the start of february they played these two shows in april and then they played a july 4th and july 5th run which would have been amazing so became part of the uh I guess, the psych band circuit in 1969. And this is, of course, where the Dead played shows with the Velvet Underground, as we talked about in our tuning segment. And were those Velvet Underground shows bootlegged? No. In fact, people, that Dead Essays blog post talks about this too. You know, Owsley would often record the opening bands, which is why we have those Allman Brothers sets from 1970. And they've been putting out some other bands recently. There's just a Johnny Cash show that just came out from the Carousel, which I think it's called like From the Bears Vault or From the Bears Diary, Bears Sonic Diaries, that's what it's called. So people speculated maybe he recorded the VU on these nights, which would have been amazing because he would have done a really high quality recording. But according to the comments on that blog post, he does not have VU shows in the vault, which is a shame. And then the structure of these nights was kind of weird because as I said, they were sort of co-headliners. And there was another band called SRC, which was like a Detroit blues band that was on the bill. And it sounds like the first night, they all played short opening sets, all three bands, bam, 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 all played like a 40 
45 minute set. And then SRC played another short set. And then the Velvet Underground came out and played for like two and a half hours and it hit curfew and it was over. So it's not clear if that was prearranged or if they like Bigfooted the Grateful Dead and just didn't let them come back on stage. And so then the next night, SRC opened, the Velvet Underground played a set, and then the Grateful Dead played for like two and a half hours. And then that took it up to curfew and ended it. So again, not clear if they were sort of sparring with each other in terms of set times. And that was like the Grateful Dead's revenge on the Velvet Underground or whether that was like prearranged that the Velvet Underground would headline one night, the Grateful Dead would headline the other. Yeah, I, I love the idea of SRC being in the middle here. You know, like <laughs> you have the Dead, you have the Velvet Underground, and then you have like SRC. Like I wonder if there's yeah. any like SRC heads out there who are just like... <laughs> <laughs> Dead and Velvet sucked, man. SRC, yeah. they, 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 they fucking killed it that night. If you want to hear Velvet Underground from this time, there are bootlegs from like later in 69. There's the famous rubber Quine tape, that, that box set, which you can stream. That's from like November uh, 69, mostly from November 69. However, there is one song on there, the, the Sister Ray slash Foggy Notion from a show in St. Louis that was not long after these shows. I don't know the okay, exact yeah. date. I know, I know it was May of 69. So if you're looking for like just a, a like a taste of like what the Velvet Underground would have sounded like, I definitely recommend checking that out. It's a pretty grainy sounding tape, but it comes through clear enough. And you kind of want the Velvets to sound a little grainy. You know, it, it, it works really well. By the way, have you got a dollar? Hey, baby, I have any kind of guy. And uh, I was looking this up. This this is a venue. It's located on Fourth Street, kind of in the Dinky Town area of Minneapolis, which is near the university. Dinky Town, of course, is where Bob Dylan hung out a lot when he was briefly in Minneapolis in like '59, '60. There was like a big coffee house folk scene. So it would stand to reason that there'd be a venue like this in the late 60s. It's like where all the cool hip kids were hanging out. I think this building is still there, but it's something else. Yeah, no, I looked it up. There's a really long website that exhaustively details every show that was at the Labor Temple. We can drop it on Twitter when this this episode comes out. They said that this building has actually been torn down. The building next to it is called the Avita Building. Yes. And some people think that's where the Labor Temple was, but in fact, it was in a building next to it that has, has since been demolished. But yeah, it sounds like a really interesting venue. It was like, they said they even opened it to be sort of like where bands who played Chicago on Friday and Saturday could play their Sunday night show, which is exactly what the Dead did this weekend. They played Friday, Saturday at Kinetic Playground and then trucked up to uh, Minneapolis for the, the Labor Temple show. The venue here was on the, it was on the third floor the building so probably also a weird electric lift situation to get all the gear up there i was gonna say owsley in his liner notes says he does not remember anything about this venue <laughs> okay <laughs> so he didn't have any details to share he was coming down from uh psychedelic saturday <laughs> well and just to uh reiterate something you said earlier about the routing issue that you know that they started this venue the labor temple in minneapolis because they knew bands would be in chicago on the weekend and like 
they would probably need some other place to play. I mean, that is something that, I mean, it's still true today of like routing tours in the Midwest that like there are certain cities like Milwaukee or Madison or Minneapolis that they get shows because there's these other big cities that if you're a band, it's like, well, we need somewhere else to play the night after or the night before to make it worth going to this place. I just want to underscore that for all you people on the East Coast and West Coast who just have great shows fall into your lap all the time. <laughs> Here in the Midwest, we have to like glom onto big cities like Chicago in order to get these bands to come see us. And that's still a fact of life today. Yeah. But yeah, there was a lot of good bands that played there. Jethro Tull, Procol Harum. Uh, Jeff Beck, Muddy Waters played there, Deep Purple. Shout out to uh, those guys from our Dick's Picks 24 episode. Yeah, there was a uh, The Faces Alice Cooper double bill at one point, which sounds oh, pretty awesome in 1970. Sean Anna played there in 1970. <laughs> they had uh, like they had all the bands uh, came through, so it was it was good that they they had this added this stop uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, one other funny thing about this show is that there was an opener for this show as well, but it was a, a jazz group called the Bobby Lyle Quintet, and I looked up Bobby Lyle, and he's mostly known for playing like smooth jazz with George Benson. So I just love this contrast between sharing shows with the Velvet Underground in 1969 in one city and then the next night having this like tinkly, <laughs> you know, piano quintet opening for the dead on Sunday night. So that that's what you got in 1969. You weren't sure which, which extreme you were going to get. Do you think the dead were also inspired by the Bobby Lyle quintet? <laughs> like we're going to show Possibly. those guys. We're going to show Bobby Lyle his boss. <laughs> Hopefully uh, they dosed Bobby Lyle, too. Oh, that'd be amazing. show let's set the scene talk about what else was happening in pop culture in april 69 the number one song in america aquarius slash let the sunshine come in by the fifth dimension of an extremely 1969 song yeah and uh we'll get to it by hair was also the number two number one album at this point so i mean this is peak hippie in terms of like the commercialization mainstreamization of the hippie movement i think this probably also factored into the velvet underground's hatred of the grateful dead and all things san francisco is that it was no longer the counterculture right they were like the velvet underground were like counter to the counterculture by this point and yeah. sort of reversing things back away from you know paisley outfits and long hair to leather jackets and sunglasses and short hair very much a cultural clash at this point yeah and i think that's also just like new york's ingrained snobbery about California, which again, that also still exists that, you know, New Yorkers (laughs) always think that what they're doing is cool and like what in California sucks, which is often not the case, of course, but that's an ingrained thing. And it's a good artistic tension that has driven a lot of great art. So here in the Midwest, we just consume them both. We're happy to have anybody came to visit us. So Uh, I should say too, that for those who have not seen the great Questlove documentary, 
mm, uh, Summer yeah. of Soul, uh, which was released on July 2nd. You can watch it on Hulu. There's like actually like a lot of Fifth Dimension content in that documentary. Really? Yeah, Fifth Dimension So they played. were like a legit band. Well, the, one of the themes of the movie is talking about how the Fifth Dimension had a lot of credibility issues at the time that people didn't mm-hmm. look at them. You know, they, they were looked at as being this pop group. There were also like racial issues with the band, like we're within the black community, like the people in Fifth Dimension felt like you know, the black community didn't look at them as being like actually black, you know, that they were playing for white audiences. So like in the movie, they're playing at this Harlem Cultural Festival, an almost entirely black audience. And they're talking about like how important that was for them to do at the time. So cool. it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's that movie has many tangents like that. It's almost like a, it's almost like 10 documentaries in one because many of the performers, there's like tangents talking about like why this person was important in 1969. So yeah, if you nice. don't know much about the fifth dimension, you're going to learn it from that movie. Go see that if you haven't seen it yet. Those are my plans for tonight. We're recording here on July 2nd. I didn't get the early, early access, like big shot music journalist, Stephen Hyden. Well, there you uh, go. So uh, I'll watch it with the plebes tonight on, uh, what is it, Hulu? Yeah. Whatever. It's on Hulu, or, or you can go to a movie theater if you're able. It would be cool to see oh. the theater. It's one of those movies where I wish, like, I hope there's a Blu-ray where they just have uncut performances because yeah. there's so much in there where you're just like, oh, I want to see this whole thing. It's like flying <laughs> the family stone is in there, and like right. Stevie Wonder is in there, and he plays like a drum solo, which is awesome. amazing. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's super good. Other big songs from this time: "You've Made Me So Very Happy" by Blood, Sweat, and Ooh. Tears. Total like supper club rock <laughs> right there. Yeah. It's your thing by the Isley Brothers, the opposite of summer club supper club rock. That's just right. a killer song. Time is tight by Booker T and the MGs. Time of the season by the Zombies. The boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. You know, we took a shot. Well, actually, more you took a shot at Paul Simon. Yeah, in our last Happily. episode, you got to concede the boxer's an incredible song, though, right? I mean, that's a great. Yeah, song. it's got. I would say questionable production on it, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great song. Yeah. I think that's his best song. Either that or Graceland, I would say, would be in the running. But America. I'd go, I'd go America. I just think the, the lyrics of The Boxer are so good. And I li- you don't like the production? I, th- I think it's a little over the top. Yeah. I love that kind of fake Phil Spector thing that they're doing on that. On yes. That. That, that whole album, I think, is really good. Anyway, as you said, number one in, album in, in America, The Hair, original cast recording. And I uh, added a disclaimer here, just in case anybody confuses these things. Uh, Hair is not a rock opera. Hair is a rock musical. Very yeah. different things. Because it was written for the stage. It was not an album first and stage right. later. And, you know, Hair is kind of like, again, capitalizing on this hippie movement and cleaning it up a little bit for the normies. It's like the Hamilton of 1969. Like, they're taking pop yeah. music and putting it into a Broadway context and there's some social commentary to it, but <laughs> it seems a little hokey now. Kind of like how Hamilton already seems hokey, I feel like at this yep. point. That seems very 2010s. <laughs> I don't know. Take a yeah. shot at Hamilton on this show. We'll see if there's any Hamilton heads out there. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> Just because we haven't had any random sitcom content in this episode and I want to keep the streak alive. The thing, I think my introduction to hair was the episode of Head of the Class when they produced hair. Do you remember this one? We got more Howard oh, Hessman yeah. content. Uh, oh, yeah. Two weeks in a row of Howard Hessman. I'm vaguely from, I vaguely remember <laughs> that. I remember watching Head of the Class. Yeah. With Arvid. Remember Arvid? He was the nerdy yeah. guy. 
course. Yeah, oh. and I remember the big debate was whether they were going to do the nude scene from Hair. Because oh, yeah. Hair has a scene where everybody's naked at a Woodstock-style festival, I think. Which, uh, no, it's a high school. Like, why would you do that? Like, why is that even <laughs> I know. Like, debatable? That's problematic, yeah. <laughs> no. Just for this stupid hippie musical? Like, no. no. It's not a good enough reason. The number one film, Support Your Local Sheriff, starring yeah. James Garner, which I have not seen. No, it's a comedy western starring James Garner. Yeah, so maybe sort of a, a blazing saddles without the racial commentary. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I like James Garner, you know, Rockford Files. Sure. He's good. The other movies that were out around this time, nothing not a whole lot notable. You got the Love Bug, Funny Girl, you have the Maisel's Brothers documentary Salesman, which is a great mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. I mean that probably would have been hard to see. I, I feel like yeah. you would have had to be in New York or LA, maybe in Chicago. Might have been wasn't burning up the box office. Yeah, it might have been at the Music Box, not too far away from the Kinetic Playground. So you probably could have seen Salesman there. Maybe Jerry was like, oh, there's no horror movies on television. I'll go see uh, <laughs> this documentary about traveling salesmen. Yeah. Uh, could be good. Number one TV show, Laughing. Kind of the hair of uh, television comedies, right? Also, yeah. all the hippie trappings sort of laid over like a very classic style variety show, right? It's not particularly edgy or counterculture in any way it just has lots of flowers and bright colors well i think at the time it was looked at as progressive comedically too because it was a very fast-paced mm. show a lot of jokes so i think for the time it actually was kind of edgy you know not just because of the hippie thing that they were glomming onto, but like a lot of tv comedy it just ages so fast <laughs> and you can't really appreciate it you can't appreciate like Goldie Hawn right. wearing a bikini and having like painted flowers on her. Right. That's pretty cool. Shout out to Goldie Hawn. Or uh, Lily Tomlin got her start on Laugh-In too, I believe, right? Right. Some and, other and people. Ruth Buzzy? Yeah. Ruth Buzzy? But yeah, that's about it. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
All right, here we are. Dick's Picks 26 from the Electric Theater slash Kinetic Playground. That's right. In Chicago, April 26, 1969. And then we go to Minneapolis, Labor Temple, April 27, 1969. So like, we've already hit this a few times in this episode that Rob and I have some disagreement about this album. And we're going to get right into it here on the first disc because the first maybe three or four or five songs on the first disc are like the hardest part of this album for me. And I have to say like this made me, it made it more difficult for me to get into this Dick's Picks because of it. And we start with Dupree's Diamond Blues, which is one of the songs from Oxo Moxa. And am I saying that right? I always say Oxamoxima. I, I don't know though. It's uh, Oxamoxima. It's, it's a tricky one. There's another, oh, there's another ox in there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is one of those songs that I, again, like, this isn't the first time it's been on Dick's Picks. I think it was on Dick's Picks 18, was it? Yeah, which is when they brought it back in the 80s, though, so it wasn't really, like, the the real version. It was kind of weird, and I just I just look at this as an example of a song that, to me, it just sounds very early 1969 in a way that I appreciate in the same way you were talking about as being a snapshot of an era, but as music, like, this is kind of a corny, lame song to me. Yeah. And, like, as the opening of the album, it really kind of gets things off on the wrong foot for right. me. You know, I, I guess I'm used to more of the slam-bang opening. And yeah. And we make fun of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, like, oh, there's a reason why that happens. Because, like, a good, fast-paced song will hook you in. And, like, this felt kind of limp to me at the beginning. So it, it, it feels a little bit like climbing into a lukewarm pool for <laughs> me at the beginning of this record. It's even funnier if you think about it in terms of what it was like that night. Cause, so you had an opening set by SRC, who I think were just kind of pretty straightforward, like creamish blues rock. Then you got the Velvet Underground playing for, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. Probably closing with Sister Ray. I think a lot of shows closed with Sister Ray at this time. So you've just been amazing. You've just heard a half hour of Sister Ray just shredding your mind. You get a little uh, set change time, and then the dead come out and play Dupree's Diamond Blues, <laughs> which sounds a little bit like, as I said, a lot of these Oxamoxima songs sound a little corny or cartoony on the record, and there's there's still a little bit of that in the live version too. This is my least favorite of these you know, sort of 69 vintage songs that we're going to hear in this volume. But I don't know. I kind of, I disagree with you that I like how, and they did this a lot in 69, I think, where they started slow and kind of eased you into the set, particularly when they were playing a really long set. You know, this song and the next song are played in sort of like a mixed acoustic electric format, which is unusual for the dead. Jerry's playing acoustic. You can hear Bob's playing electric. The drummers are in full drums. So it's not like the acoustic 70s sets where they were all acoustic, except for Phil, who always plays electric bass. But I kind of like that, like, sort of middle ground, we're going to ease you in with, like, a half-unplugged intro prologue here. And I love that this set, if you listen to the whole thing, begins with this sort of cutesy, acoustic, post-folk song, and ends with, you know, this assault <laughs> of feedback and what becomes of the baby and then I bid, and we bid you goodnight as their sort of coda. So I love the, the distance traveled in this set between Dupree's and that really fiery ending. But yeah, I mean, Dupree's is okay. I like this one better than the 78 one. You know, a lot of these songs I feel like are really Garcia and Hunter loving old folk songs and trying to like write sort of updated psychedelic folk songs. And they very quickly moved on to just writing updated 
folk songs when they got to like the working man's dead american beauty but there's still this sort of like trailing lingering summer of love hippie thing that they're working in you know you can hear it in sort of like all the sort of antiquated language that robert hunter likes to use in these songs so dupree's is a good example of that it keeps talking about jelly roll which i wasn't quite sure what it was referring to and unfortunately i found out it is slang for the female genitals which makes me like the song even less (laughs) Um, (laughs) i feel like that was like in ragtime yeah exactly but that's what i mean it's like this like 20s slang they're tossing around i mean i kind of like that as just like a naughty i i don't know if i knew that specifically but i figured (laughs) it was something sexual right yeah you know it just sounds something i mean i agree i like the acoustic electric mix too i just wish they were playing a better song yeah you know like like to me the thing about this song is that it reminds me of like when you watch schoolhouse rock and they're doing like these sort of imitation hippie yeah. rock sounding things. It could sounds like that. I could like, see it, that. Yeah. It, it, re- it reminds me of that, which again I can appreciate as far as it being a snapshot of the era. But you know, like we were talking about the Jefferson Airplane last week, and how I I've never really connected with their music, and to me, it's because they sound so tied to the era in a way that just comes off as corny you know mm-hmm. like when you revisit a lot of those songs and like to me this is like an example of, of 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 corniness with the dead if they had just stayed in this place and they weren't a great band like they would have also fossilized in that way but as we were discussing earlier garcia hunter were evolving rapidly as songwriters and seven months after this they're gonna be playing a song like direwolf or at casey jones like if they had played that here in the in that acoustic electric hybrid I'd be right on board. That, that that would be grabbing me. But yeah, doing that hybrid with a song that's not very good, yeah. it, it drags it down for me a little bit. Going into the next song, Mountains of the Moon, Dick's Pick's debut. Finally. And, and I will concede your point on Dupree's Diamond Blues, not my favorite, but I will uh, fight you tooth and nail on Mountains of the Moon, which I think is an excellent song that disappeared way too fast. And it's kind of like like the song more than that. They both sort of teeter on this edge between corny and cool and Dupree's maybe falls on the corny side. Mountains of the Moon, I think it it sounds sort of Renaissance fair (laughs) at times. I was going to say it it, it has like a witchy feel to it. Yeah, exactly. And the thing I like about it is that it has that like, Manson family mm-hmm. like spookiness to it. I think that's the power of this, and I so I, I do appreciate that aspect of it. It sounds a little like a Donovan song, like Donovan. I think you know, hurdy gurdy man, sort of on that borderline of psychedelic and folky and almost like medieval <laughs> a little bit in terms of uh, how it sounds. But I I love Mountains of the Moon, and I really wish it had stuck around longer. I think some later eras of the dead could have done cool versions of Mountains of the Moon. But it really was only played in 1969, and uh, this is one of the few appearances. The most famous one, which you can find on YouTube, is when they played it on the Playboy After Dark show, which is just a famous Grateful Dead television appearance in general for a lot of reasons. And this one sounds a lot like that version. And one of the more interesting things with this version is that Almost every time they played Mountains of the Moon, it was like a prologue to Dark Star. And even on Live Dead, you can hear the end of Mountains of the Moon at the very start of the record before Dark Star begins. They sort of had this transition where Jerry would switch from acoustic to electric and it would sweep right into the sort of the opening jam of Dark Star. This one really sounds like it's going to go into Dark Star. In fact, it's listed as a Dark Star jam in some places for about a minute, and then they just pull the plug and don't play Dark Star. And I don't know why, but it's it's a, a very cool sort of 60 to 90 seconds of surprise jamming, I guess, at the end of a not jammy song. Mm-hmm. 
wish they had done that. I think that would have been really awesome on this album and would have changed it, I think, for me quite a bit. They, you know, this had been almost like a like a prelude to Dark Star. I will say, like, I like this song. I think the issue I'd have with this performance is that I think the dead at this time, you know, and I'll go back to something I said before, that I think at this point, their strength was aggression, energy, and playing really hard. And I don't think they quite had the nuance yet to really sell these slower songs. Like they, like this feels a little listless at times to me. And I, I guess I'm just thinking about the Harper College show that we, mm-hmm. you know, that we both love, Dick's Picks Eight, where it, it starts with the acoustic set. And to me, that's just so much more commanding at that point, playing acoustically than how they sound here. And I think they had to learn how to be a little bit more nuanced on stage and be a little bit more subtle. And I don't think they were quite there yet with this. I think right. that they got there pretty soon after this, but I don't think they sell these songs as well as they do when they're just ripping ass on the eleven. For right. instance, like so, I I like this song, but I think this performance for me is like a little sleepy. Yeah, but again, like I said earlier, it's like this is a great moment of transition, and you don't get to that, you don't get to Harper College without Mountains of the Moon at this era. And right. while it's still early, and maybe not quite as you know confident as, as that performance, I'm charmed by the younger Grateful Dead attempting to do this, dipping their toe in the water of like, can we command an audience with? some acoustic material and i like i said i just like the vibe of mountains of the moon i don't think that that spookiness is something that you really get from the working man's dead american beauty acoustic material it's a, it's a different right. flavor from that stuff and i like that about it i mean i think this part of the set i would make a distinction between interesting and good yeah i think okay. it's interesting but for me it's not always like great Got you it. know yeah. so and i think that also is true of the next song china right Cat. sunflower obviously this is a rare song from this period that just transcends every dead era. You know, the, 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 they still play this today. It's a great song. Obviously, we don't have the I Know You Writer part of it with this yet. But this is kind of like a wild performance. It feels <laughs> almost like, you know, like a, like a top that is toppling, you know, <laughs> yeah. about to fall over. It's kind of like very herky-jerky. Yeah. It's the one that reminds me the most of that 68 Lake Tahoe show, because the drums are just all over the place. It's that, again, that two drummers sounding like one Keith Moon <laughs> phenomenon we talked about in that 68 show. It still is clearly not the mature form of China Cat yet. And yeah, as you said, they they don't go in the rider. They figured that out later in 69. It was It's almost like they're auditioning songs to pair with China Cat, because in 68, remember, they did China Cat into the 11. Which was pretty cool, actually. Which is pretty cool, like yeah. That, that could have worked similarly well to Ryder, though I like how you have this like frothy China cat, which has, you know, I think the same sort of Robert Hunter quality as these more forgotten songs like Dupree's or Doing That Rag, where it the lyrics are just like a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's like he's going for it. He's like kaleidoscopic late 60s imagery everywhere and tons of words and kind of hard to sing and i like how it pairs with i know you writer which is just like a very earthy straightforward folk song oh yeah i mean they, they, they clearly got the peanut butter and jelly combo exactly yeah that's correct with that yeah no question about it but yeah i mean i like this performance of china cat as wild as it is just because i feel like it's like waking up from a nap <laughs> from the first two songs i'm yeah. like okay Get an infusion of energy here. But then we go into doing that rag next. And look, I'm going to apologize to anyone out there who <laughs> loves this song. I think this song sucks. 
I think this song is basically a bunch of changes in the place of a song. And it just dragged this this part of the disc <laughs> down for me again. It goes for seven minutes. It, I'm sorry. It's just very tedious to me. And it's like kind of like late 60s that at, at its worst mm. for me. Very dated sounding. This is a song, I didn't look this up. I'm guessing that they did not play this much or at all, like after 69. No, it, it was pretty much a 69 exclusive. Yeah, and it, and it, and it belongs in 69 <laughs> because, yeah, this is not a good song. I'm sorry, it's not. Yeah, counterpoint, Doing That Rag is an awesome song. I love it. <laughs> it does not suck. It you is think not it's the an worst. awesome song. I do, I love it. I think it's a great, I think it's one of the, it's one of my favorite uh, obscure Grateful Dead songs. It's so boring. I love it for all the reasons you hate it, which is funny since we agree so much on matters of musical taste. It is a million chords and tempo changes and just like throwing everything at the wall. Uh, but I like songs like that. And I think it works in a way that something like, I don't know. New Potato Caboose is another one that's like that. I like that a lot more. Wow. I like that one a lot more than this. I think Doing That Rag is catchier. I like the Jerry vocals. I like the lyrics. I like that it it is a very unpredictable and manic song. It doesn't go anywhere, though. It doesn't build anything. It does. It's got a really cool... There's a really cool Jerry solo at the end that is just like it's not a florid Jerry solo, but it's kind of like, it's a little St. Stephen-y. It's like the hard rocking part of St. Stephen. It's got a similar sort of peak at the end of doing that rag. People who know my taste in indie rock, I think will not be surprised by my love for doing that rag because it, it kind of sounds like a Fiery Furnaces song. It sounds like an Of Montreal song. It's like one of these songs that is like proggy, but still in sort of like a condensed, overstuffed poppy version of Prague that is just like really ADD and material and like it's like three songs slammed together in the one and it's very wordy and I I just I like that about it I like really ambitious goofy songs (laughs) and doing that rag is in that I like that kind of songwriting too I mean like Saint Stephen is probably like the most famous example of that from this period where you have like different sections of a song being crammed together right and I've got issues with St. Stephen, we'll get to that later, of <laughs> kind of dreading that conversation. But I think that is a much more effective use of that formula, that the parts of that are more compelling than this. I mean, I know that it's all these different parts put together, but I don't think that any of the individual parts are all that compelling. Or I, I guess I don't think it's catchy. I just think it's kind of a slog. <laughs> and like the fact that it's so long on this album, too, I was like, Jesus Christ. Can we get out of this section? Like again, like <laughs> it's not that long. It's like seven minutes long. I mean, you're a Grateful Dead fan. You can handle a seven minute song. <laughs> it feels longer than that to be like if, if you're not feeling a song. Yeah, seven minutes is like a long time, especially after hearing that second set from this show. Right. I'm like, man, get this stuff out of here. Like, <laughs> get these songs out. Get that stuff in, like the feedback and like they're just ripping ass. Like, I want to hear that. I don't want to hear these like slow songs that aren't performed all that well, in my opinion. Like, I, I don't know. I just, this part of the disc, you could shoot it into the sun. Like, I'm just not <laughs> into it. Uh, Mountains of the Moon is different. Like, I yeah. keep that in there, but like this song and Dupree, get them out of here. Just not feeling it. I'm sorry. All right. Well, not for me. Not my cup of tea. Just have to agree to disagree. And like I say, the Grateful Dead isn't just one band, it's a lot of different bands. And this is this is one slice of the Grateful Dead that uh is is more to my taste than yours. I think that's, that's I mean, fair. I'm curious to hear the feedback on this. If, yeah. if if people I I have a feeling I'll probably get crucified for this, which is fine. <laughs> I'll stand behind it. Like 
This is not like Mississippi Half Step, where I, I will admit that I was too grouchy about that song on our first episode. If someone wants to defend doing that rag, I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe with them. I think that song sucks. But anyway, we go from there into Cryptical, and then the other one. And this is where it starts to perk up for me. Yeah. And just to, just to note, there is a cut here where they wheeled, or Pigpen put down his bottle of Jack and strolled over to the front of the stage and did hurts me too and hard to handle. I do wish they had kept those in. And again, maybe they should have just let this sprawl out and give this show two discs. I would have rather heard those than the songs that they yeah, put yeah, here. Yeah, I know you would have. You would rather heard a boring 12-bar blues instead of doing that rag, smashing all these like song ideas together. At least hard to handle. That would have been fun. I don't think we've had that. Yeah, on, I don't uh, really like the pig pen yet. hard to handle, though. Just because... Oh, I, I dig that. I think I was raised on the Black Crows hard to handle, and it's hard for me to go back he's doing more of the otis redding one not to my taste but i like to be awake when i'm listening to dick's picks and that would have woken me up really from the slumber of the beginning of this album yeah like this hurts is a, me this too hard boring. to handle Ugh, i don't know the thing is is that they have another song on here that yeah. we're gonna get to later Just i know like it's a sin which is like exactly the same as it's hurts like me a clone too. of hurts me too yeah <laughs> so i don't know if i would need that but like yeah. hard to handle i would have i would have yeah shoot this uh doing that rag crap out of here i'll take hard <laughs> to handle over that yeah i would take hard to handle over doing that rag well it's funny because the, the way they cut this setup it makes it sound like jerry sings almost everything we're about to get to the other one which is one of only two bob songs on the entire set and then pig pen gets love light a lot of love light as you mentioned <laughs> but you know pig pen would typically do you know four or five songs in a show so the way they edited this down makes it sound like the band was a little more jerry heavy than it actually was at this point so it's interesting hearing you know again we were talking about this being an evolution evolutionary period for the dead i mean they were constantly in an evolutionary period in the late 60s of course but it's interesting hearing the the other one i mean this is another song obviously that we've heard many many times and it's not quite as crazy as some of the other ones that we hear from late 60s, 70s. I would say generally that this album is mellower than certainly that 68. Yeah, everything is mellower than Dick's Picks 22. <laughs> and I guess, and that maybe is a problem I had with this Dick's Picks, is that I just had Dick's Picks 22 in my head yeah. a lot. Yeah. And, and comparing some of the songs that they play that both those albums share, I just feel like they're more exciting on Dick's Picks 22. And the rhythm section from Dick's Picks 22, again, is like so incredible and they're really good here too but like not as good there and i don't think as good as live dead and maybe it's because it started off so mellow and they're still trying to get some energy up here in the other one i mean it does feel like they're kind of jacking themselves up okay let's get the blood pump in here after this kind of sleepy opening mm -hmm. to me and they don't quite get there i mean it's it's good though i like it I mean, this is my favorite part or i mean i like this a lot more than what we've just heard but yeah it's definitely like the rocking part of this disc yeah it's a very straightforward the other one, even to the point of it being the old that's it for the other one, where you have cryptical envelopments and then the other one. But then where it swerves is it goes from the other one into the 11 and then back into the other one, which going back to the transitional theme, I think is really cool because so they've recorded Live Dead. It doesn't come out until November. The centerpiece of Live Dead and sort of the centerpiece of Grateful Dead shows in 1969 is this suite of Dark Star into St. Stephen, into the Eleven, into Love Light, which I don't know how many times they played that sort of quartet of songs together like that, but at least, you know, a couple dozen times. And they continued to play that through you know, sort of the rest of 69 before they started 
breaking it up in different ways. But I love that before the album has even come out, they are already tinkering with those songs and trying to insert them in different places. So in this case, taking the 11 and plopping it into the middle of the other one, instead of having it come out of St. Stephen, which has this whole rehearsed transition between the two songs. And at first, I was a little bit put off by it because the transition from the other one into the 11 is a little rough. There's about 90 seconds where it takes like a full 90 seconds to two minutes before the entire band like lurches itself into the 11 completely, which makes sense because, you know, the 11 being in such a weird time signature, you can't just like drop into 11-4, I think, (laughs) out of the other one. So it maybe catches the drummers and Phil off guard a little bit and it takes a little while for everybody to get together. But I I like that this sounds way more spontaneous than the St. Stephen 11 on the second disc, I guess, because it does feel a little more dangerous and risk-taking to try and attempt this segue versus the one that is sort of rehearsed and polished on the second disc. After that, I, th- I, I like this version of the 11, but I think it, because of that shaky beginning, it never quite lifts off in the same way that the second disc one does. But I, I'm never going to not want to hear the 11. I, li- I, I really yeah. like hearing it here. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that they threw a curveball and threw it in an unexpected place. So, so I'm willing to forgive some of the shakiness at the beginning for that reason. You know, if they were going from St. Stephen through the 11 and they, and they fucked it up, then I'd be like more critical of yeah. it. But they are doing something different here. And I was talking earlier, maybe in a grouchy kind of way, talking about some of the songs from this period that are very much tied to the era and saying it in a disparaging way. I mean, you could say the same thing about the 11, that this is very much like a late 60s dead sounding song. And, and I love the 11. Like, I love that aspect of it because I think this is a great vehicle for what I love about the dead in this period. Again, I love the energy. I love them in high-octane mode at this time. It's one of the great showcases for that, like where they can really strut their stuff in a way that they're not going to do later on because in a way they're a more confident band and they're a more, again, more nuanced band. So yeah, I don't mind hearing the 11 twice. We're going to hear the 11 on the second disc. And it's interesting to compare. I know you're really big on the, uh, the other version of the 11, and we'll get to that one. That's more in that live dead vein gets closer to that but yeah i love this version and i love how it goes back to the other one a little bit yeah very briefly i'm not really sure what was up with that because they don't have like the second verse to sing or anything i mean that's what i like again it's it's more it feels more fluid and uh adventurous than the sort of pre-planned segues of the of the second disc yeah i mean you definitely feel like oh they're kind of not really sure what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they probably realize, like, oh, wait, we don't have to go back to this. Okay, let's just stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's cool. I, I like that. I like that aspect of it. 
And then we go into I Know It's a Sin, which we've talked about. We talked about a little bit before, a few minutes ago. I mean, I remember hearing this and thinking it was Hurts Me Too. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds a lot like her. And not just like in a blues kind of way, but like even, I mean, the vocal melody is basically the same yeah. from Hurts Me Too. Except Jerry but sings this it is, instead of Big Ben. Except Jerry sings it, exactly, which is kind of a weird thing. And that, that is something that I appreciated about it, that, oh, this should be a Pig Pen song. It's yeah. Like, oh, is that? But Pigpen sounds like Jerry. <laughs> oh, it's it's not Pigpen. It's Jerry. I mean, you and I we disagree on the blues stuff, right? Especially in this period. I mean, when we get into the '80s, I think their blues stuff gets a little corny. But in the '60s, I think they actually they had a great blues thing going on. Mm-hmm. Part of that is Pigpen, like the swagger that he had that he could really sell that stuff. Also. I mean, is it the fact that Bob's not singing these songs? Yeah. Is Bob the denominator here? Because, like, when Bob is singing it, he definitely devolves into, like, a lot of bad white guy blues cliches, cliches. Yeah. with his vocal. And maybe that's what ruins it. Like, if Jerry's doing it, he's got a nice, more relaxed vocal style with this kind of material. Mm. That it's not trying so hard to be soulful, you know, in a way that, like, Bob is right. like, really exaggerating it. And then... Pigpen just has like that natural growl that works so well. Yeah. As I've said before, I like blues performances that are maybe a little bit subversive in a way. And Bob doing sort of full on macho blues singer voice is like exactly what I do not want to hear from a blues song. Whereas Jerry with his very sensitive voice singing a blues song appeals to me more. And I went back, I listened to the original too, which is a Jimmy Reed song. Jimmy Reed also has sort of this more sensitive, pained vocal performance uh, rather than a big sort of brassy pig pen Bob style blues reading. So I think it actually, it makes a lot of sense that Jerry would sing this. I was not familiar with this song. I didn't even know the dead played this song. I don't know that I'd ever heard it on another tape before. Obviously it's a Dick's Picks debut, but I, I yeah, I was, I was surprised because it's uh, not something that appeared very frequently in their catalog. Weirdly, they played it one time in 1974. I got to look up that show, June 18th, oh. which is, it feels like very late sixties dead. So it's funny that it popped up post pig pen in the middle of 74 jazz dead. But we'll see. 74 Jerry singing that, I think, would be pretty sweet. Yeah. I could could see that being cool. From there, we go to Love Light. What they did was they took the Love Light from Minneapolis and they split it in half, basically, right? I mean, because it was like a 35-minute Love Light from Minneapolis, and this is like the first 20 minutes. Well, yeah. So it's funny because the first time I listened through this disc, I thought the entire first disc was Chicago. And then the second disc was Minneapolis. Because you have this love light here, and then you have another one on disc two. And so I just figured it was, you know, each night had a 20-minute love light. But it's actually at this point that we switched from the Chicago show to the Minneapolis show, which opened with love light, (laughs) and then played a bunch of songs, and then went back into love light sort of at the end of the set with like a an extra song as an encore, Uh, which I don't think they did very much. I couldn't find another example of sort of love light bookends sort of in the way that they would play with playing in the band later on, as we've heard in some other Dick's picks. So it's funny because they don't really, it's not like they play like the first half of Love Light and then the second half of Love Light. It's kind of like they just play Love Light twice, (laughs) like an hour apart, (laughs) which I'm sure is like, you know, one version of hell for Steve (laughs) that they would do it two times. (laughs) Let's not exaggerate it. I don't hate this song. I actually like Love Light. I just don't need two Love Lights. (laughs) Exactly. You know, like, 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 do you want two Love Lights? I think one Love Light can be perfectly fine. Yeah. It's just overkill for me (laughs) to have two Love Lights on here. I think it's funny. It's a different feeling having a show open with Love Light 
because I always like Love Light as sort of like the rave up finale to a show. Like usually it's coming, you know, at the end of this Dark Star, Steven, Eleven, Sweets, or it's just coming at the end of any Grateful Dead show. So you've been on this like cosmic psychedelic journey with the 60s Grateful Dead. And then Pigpen's just here to, to like lead, basically MC like a big sweaty, horny dance party for a half hour. Yeah, like a big gospel type ending. Yeah, exactly. And I could also see like appreciating the conceptual setup of having Love Light at the beginning and having it at the end. And if it had been like this on the discs, maybe yeah. I would feel differently about it. Yeah. But to have it in the middle and then have the other one at the end, it just has a different feel to me. Yeah. And again, like why not get rid of one of these Love Lights and put in some of that sweet, noisy stuff from 426? You right. know, I just feel like I'm getting a lot of love light here. Like again, thirty, like twenty minutes of love light. I'm with you. Thirty-five minutes of love light. Okay, all right. It's a little much. Yeah, it's just a little much for me. Yeah. I'm sorry. And and especially when there's cool stuff on the cutting room floor that you could put in in its place. I mean, yeah. So that would be my complaint. The thing about this love light, which is you know, it's a solid love light. It's got some interesting sections. I always say that. What's cool about Love Light is how they just sort of weave in and out of various chugles and blues rock riffs and things like that. Like it's kind of like they're it's it's like they're playing a medley of songs that don't really exist <laughs> wrapped in this Love Light package. And there's like a there's a Jerry Slide part that I thought you might have appreciated about 15 minutes into this Love Light, which is I, I think sort of unusual for a Love Light. I mean, I probably like this one more than the one on the second disc. Yeah, maybe just because it comes first. And also because, again, after not really feeling the first half, I was more amenable to like anything that was more energetic. In High energy. Yeah. So, so I was appreciating that. So yeah, if this had been the only love light, great. I agree with you that generally I, I, I like it at the end too. It, it, it's the same thing like, like when you hear Don't Fade Away. After like a long jam and you go into like this sort of like rock release, like we're just going to, after going through this experience of psychedelia, now we're going to just have a fun dance party exactly like it has that kind of payoff but just the way these cds are structured it doesn't quite have the same payoff Mm -hmm. the payoff that you get though is that this love light very unusually segues into me and my uncle which is a real surprise and we've complained i think a little bit about me and my uncle showing up all the time and not being terribly different from performance to performance this is a really cool one because well for one it it sounds extremely early. It's not the first time they played it. It's kind of where they brought it back for perpetuity. <laughs> like they played it a little bit in 66 and 67. It came back at this show and then they played it for the next uh, 25 years. Pretty much the most every played other song. Show. Yeah. In Grateful Dead history, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, again, I'm always surprised every single time that I hear that factoid. Yeah. That this is the song that they've played the most. Um, because it's it's a it's a good song on its own, but like it's not I don't think it would make anyone's list of like their five favorite dead songs. I mean it's it's good. And this version I actually like, I think because it seems a little less like a sleepwalk version. Yeah. With certain dead songs, you feel like, oh, this is like they're taking a breather. You know, because like, they've, you know, they've played Mama Tried a million times. Like, we'll play Mama Tried for three minutes. We'll catch our breath. Right. Before we go into something else more challenging. And me and my uncle often has that feel to me. But they haven't played it a million times at this point. So, like, the rawness of it and, like, how Bob's vocal is, like, a little uncertain, <laughs> it makes it sound fresher.
went right down South Colorado, West Texas bound We stopped over Santa Fe That made the point just about halfway And, and, and also, TC's organ sounds really good. Yeah, and TC, as we said earlier, is is very prominent in this show and adds, you know, sort of a different element. TC, I don't know, I wasn't super impressed with him in this show. I think he is really good at specific songs, like Dark Star. He's great, and it like adds something that Pig Pen couldn't add to Dark Star because Pigpen would just play that same organ riff over and over again, whereas TC is way more sort of interactive and improvisational in his approach. And he sounds really good on that whole Live Dead suite of music. But there's other songs that I find his organ playing to be kind of boring. I think he's kind of a one-trick pony. But yeah, it, it adds a different flavor to this, me and my uncle. And yeah, like you said, Bob, who only gets to sing two songs in this whole set, rather than being sort of co-lead vocalist with Jerry, it's kind of like his time in the sp- you know, brief time in the spotlight. So he, he just sounds really young <laughs> to me in this version in, in sort of an adorable way. Like you want to like pinch his cheek <laughs> while he's singing me and my uncle. Was he even 20 years old yet when this show was? He would If he was, he was barely out of his 20s. Yeah, he was the, 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 the kid of, of the band for sure. Yeah, so yeah. it's, uh, you, and you can hear it. He His voice even sounds different. He was 21 uh, during this show okay but yeah you're right yeah they haven't they're not on autopilot yet so it sounds like a, a unique version and then they segue again in another segue that you don't hear very often into sitting on top of the world which is from the first grateful dead record the self-titled record but i feel like it's kind of of a piece with all these songs you don't like <laughs> like it has sort of a similar vibe to doing that rag or dupree's uh, well, yeah but sitting on top of the world is like a blues standard i mean this mm-hmm. is a song i mean like cream played it around this time right originated with the Mississippi Sheiks from from 1930. So I mean, it's been performed by a lot of people. I mean, really on this version, it just sounds like an ex- like an extension of me and my uncle. I mm-hmm. mean, you could almost like if you weren't looking at the tracks, you could almost feel like it was one long song, but just like with a different chorus. Right. I mean, to me, this is like much more straightforward than like doing that reg. I mean, this is just like straight blues for the most I, part. I think it's more though in like the speed that they play it at is sort of akin to doing that rag and Dupree's. I feel like... Doing that rag isn't fast, though. It is. Doing that rag is like... It's got a million chords, so they got to play it fast. But but it has no energy to like this live (laughs) version. I mean, come on, man. Like, you... There was no propulsive feeling. I mean, to me, like, this is, like, way more upbeat at the end of this set than at the beginning. Or, like, Diamond Dupree's... Or Dupree's Diamond Blues. I'm not going to break up the podcast over doing that rag. Uh, <laughs> I disagree. I mean, you go into the mat for doing that rag. I'm a little like surprised the, yeah. the degree to which you are defending doing that rag. But I, I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot of doing that rag defenders out there. We'll see when this episode goes up. I think Dupree's and doing that rag are like Garcia and Hunter trying to write a song like sitting on top of the world and and missing the mark. But I feel like it's it's like that's their starting point, right? Like right. all great songwriters start by copying the things that they respect. Totally. So I think they're trying to write like a high energy folk blues song like sitting on top of the world. They got a little too caught up in sort of hippie nonsense <laughs> on their first few tries. And then they then they got it. By the end of 69, they got it. They're writing songs that could have been on 
you know, Harry Smith's American Anthology of Folk Music from the 30s. Right. But they're brand new songs. But yeah, comparing like how Cream does Sitting on Top of the World to how The Dead does Sitting on Top of the World, Cream makes it like, you know, sort of a slow, dirgy blues rock song. Whereas The Dead are playing this sort of like garagey folk rock version, I think. Really reveals a lot about the priorities of those two bands, but also like the kind of music that Garcia and Hunter thought they wanted to make it this time is all I'm saying. And I and I love the garage aspect of it. And I don't think and I, I wish those other songs that were that we've been arguing about had more of that. Mm-hmm. I think that they're a little too like in their own head. Mm. You know, and and again to go back to what you're saying, like yeah, of course, like they you, great songwriters progress. Uh, and I'll just go back to what I said before. There's, there's a difference between interesting and good. <laughs> yeah. Like those songs are interesting to me as like early examples of them trying to write in a certain style. But like they're it's they're not good songs, you know, like they're the rough drafts of some, of things that they're going to do much better not long after this Mm -hmm. so it's interesting for me to hear those songs and to be like oh this is where they started but like as songs themselves i don't think that they're very good you know and and i think even they probably would have felt that way which is why those songs didn't endure they got left behind because it's like oh wait wait we figured this out like we're writing way better songs now we don't have to play these anymore right uh so again i'm glad that they're there and that you can go back and study them but I mean, come on though like they're not as good as like what they did later on and i don't think they're even that good on their own you know so that that's the case i would make okay. for that and i think it's a testament to how much they grew you know that this is where they started like wow you did this in early 69 <laughs> and you're writing direwolf and casey jones and late it's like holy shit like what a progression that they made you know at this time so can we close the book on disc one the most contentious disc in 36 from the vault history. And I just want to say, I agree with all of that. I think it's uh, where we differ is just how like charmed you are by hearing that. But yeah, more interesting than good. I, 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 I kind of agree with that. Uh, but I, but, but I do find it charming and fun to listen to. I have to say that, like, I think I disagree with you in that, like, I like it more on the album than in this show, because really? I think on the album, it is more of like a time capsule. Mm. Whereas here, I think I resent it because in the structure of a live show, it's just a drag. Yeah. You know? It's like, if I want to hear that era of the dead, I'll listen to the record. It just kind of works in its era. But, like, in a show, you're just killing the momentum. I, I guess I just it's a different listening experience for me. And, and, and in a live setting, I don't appreciate it as much. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's close the book on disc one because I think we're more on the same page with disc two. Disc two, two much less controversial. And it's funny because it's yeah. like, you know, they've been doing all these big 50th anniversary celebrations of Grateful Dead records. Obviously, they were putting out a lot of stuff in the early 70s, classic studio albums and live albums. They kind of, they skipped Live Dead though, right? They didn't do a 50th anniversary of Live Dead, which might be because those, mm. the full shows that they recorded uh, for Live Dead, because Live Dead comes from, I think, two or three different shows in February and March. They've already released those full shows. They did like a box set that were like the the full recordings, 16 track recordings from from that source material. So maybe they just decided the Live Dead didn't need like a bonus show. Because that's the cool thing about all these 50th anniversary shows is that they put out like a show from that era as like a bonus disc or a bonus couple discs. So you get like some 1970 shows with American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. You get another 71 show from the Skull and Roses live album. But if you were to do like a bonus disc for Live Dead... This disc would have been a good candidate, I think, because yeah, it's got I mean, that it, same four song sequence, but it's like, here's what it sounds like, you know, six to eight weeks later after they recorded Live Dead. And here's how they've grown in those two months. Yeah, with Live Dead, it probably was just hard to like be like, well, what haven't we released already from yeah. live? You know, like, what are we going to put on as a, as a bonus? And like, if you already have a live album, do you do like another live album or it's <laughs> exactly. the same songs? Yeah. yeah, maybe it wouldn't work. But yeah, it is an interesting comparison between this and and uh, Live Dead for the reasons that you're saying. It they're so close together, and really, I mean, to me, ultimately, with this disc, and I, and I like the second disc, but of of Dick's Picks Twenty Six, but it does highlight like how good Live Dead is yeah. to me because I I don't think there's anything here that would I would replace. Yeah, that I would rather hear this than what's on Live Dead. Yeah. And that starts with the Dark Star. And I don't know how you feel about this, but like when I think about like the Live Dead Dark Star, again, I think of it as this like pretty kinetic experience. You know, it's like very, it's, a, it's like a pretty intense Dark Star. Yeah. And like this one seemed a lot mellower to me. And I enjoyed it when I, whenever, whenever I've listened to it, I've enjoyed it, but it doesn't quite have a payoff for me. It kind of wanders very pleasantly for about 26 minutes. But the, the, the peaks that, that I think a lot of people expect from a Dark Star don't really come to pass here. And I'm always, I was always kind of like waiting for it. Mm. Like, oh, we're, we're going we're gonna to kick in here. We're either, it's either going to get louder or it's going to get like spacier or something's going to, we're going to have some sort of narrative here. And I didn't really feel like there was one here other than just having like a pleasant Dark Star. Right. You know, a, a pleasant drift. Yeah. Well, something we talked about in the past is that Dark Stars of different eras, they may sound like they're just like free improv, but they actually did kind of have like a roadmap they were working from. And so there's Dark Stars that are clumped together sort of follow a a similar path, even if they don't sound exactly the same. And it's clear that this one, the roadmap for it is very similar, if not identical, to the Live Dead Dark Star, which is like tattooed on my brain like every note of that dark star (laughs) and so it is really hard to listen to this dark star and not compare them and i don't think it it matches up and it's kind of like the difference between like you get this a lot in the grateful dead there's very good performances there's a lot of very good performances of songs like dark star and then there's the performances where they've like they just like catch fire right like it's a it's a whole other level up and it just sounds like, you know, a religious, spiritual experience almost. And the Live Dead Dark Star is like that. I mean, it's I've said it before. It's my favorite guitar performance by anybody is Jerry on that Dark Star. And it just doesn't have those incredible runs that he has on the official release. So you're right. It's like, it's a pleasant 26 minutes listen. It's 
sort of similar to that. It's sort of like, it's like those big Miles Davis boxes where there's like a bunch of takes of like, you know, in a silent way. <laughs> and you listen to it and you're like, oh yeah, they picked the right one here because the other ones are pretty good, but they're not the version. And that's the case here where it's like, yeah, this is this would be like, if they were in a studio, this would be like the, the pretty good take that they could still improve upon. Yeah, I mean, it's not a slam on this version at all. It's just not the same as one of the greatest pieces of recording music ever <laughs> so from there we go into like another live dead chestnut yeah beloved track saint stephen and <laughs> in my notes i was a little harder on this song that I, i'm gonna be in our actual episode because saint stephen and this is like a good performance of this song mm-hmm. can i just say though like saint stephen to me is maybe the most frustrating grateful dead song because every time it starts you have that awesome like little fanfare and then it slams into that kick-ass riff and like for the first minute and a half i'm like hell yeah this is gonna this is like the greatest grateful dead song of all time and then after that i i just feel like i I, it loses me a little bit like Mm -hmm. i'm not as into it so like when people are so gung-ho on saint stephen this is like the song that like i'm not quite on board with everyone like dark star the 11 you know all the other big chestnuts from this era, you know, China, uh, China Cat, obviously, love all those. St. Stephen, again, I think it's like the best example of what we were talking about before of them having parts and putting them together into like almost like a suite of, of songs. It's the best example of that from this period. But even here, I feel like it doesn't always quite gel for <clears> me. <throat> they have to really nail it for me to like love this song. And I don't think they quite nail it here. In the same way that they do on Live Dead. I mean, I think the Live Dead version is obviously the definitive version of, of St. Stephen. But I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's probably smoke coming out of your ears as I'm talking no, about this. Not really, because <clears throat> I think St. Stephen is maybe the kind of song where you really only need that one version of it, right? Like, is there like a second great version of St. Stephen? Other than, I guess, maybe like you would want to have one of this, like the Cornell one or something, like one of the slower versions from later in the it 70s. has to like have that right thing where it almost sounds out of control yeah. to me like where like especially that beginning part it has to sound like it's careening and it has that energy to it but it's also like just like the stop start dynamics of it and yeah we've talked about this like when they play it later on in the 70s it doesn't quite hit as hard because they, they don't have like the right amount of energy yeah and like that live dead version it's so powerful for that reason where yeah if you're not nailing that it doesn't sell it quite as well for me right i could also see that your take on it in this volume might be colored by all those other disc one songs that you don't like because it's very much probably. of a piece with those songs it's probably like the best of those songs in a lot of ways but it shares a lot of the flaws right like it's very wordy Absolutely. it's got a lot of parts <laughs> jerry you know later said he didn't like playing it because it has so many parts and so many words <clears throat> even though it kind of outlasted certainly in terms of reputation all of these other oxymoxima songs it is similarly flawed and could probably only be played by this incarnation of the dead and as they evolved they became a band that isn't very well suited for this song i think yeah but still like for this era it's so definitive that mm-hmm. like it'd be weird to not hear like a 69 or a 68 dead show and not get a saint stephen yeah so i'm glad it's here and this one does all the a lot of the things that you want from a saint stephen like that breakdown where they hit the really loud snares after the one man gathers what another man spills, those snares are really loud. They sound like gunshots. It's great. TC brings it on this song, I think. The, the two chord jam at the end after that is great. Yeah, TC's organ sounds really good. I like 
St. Stephen's that have the really weird William Tell part again, sort of Renaissance fairy <laughs> early uh, Robert Hunter lyrics, overly ornate, overly grandiose. But I like that little transition from St. Stephen into the 11s. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like the Dark Star. It's hard not to compare this one to the Live Dead version. And the Live Dead version is the perfect performance of this song. So tough to compete. I mean, are we... Because I like this disc more than the first disc. But I mean, do you think they would have been better off just releasing 426? <sighs> if they had put the, the noisy part at the end? Put the noise, yeah, and just make that the second disc. Yeah. And uh, just preserve that. I mean, for all my problems like with the early part of this... I, I do kind of like the idea of just preserving that complete show as like a snapshot of the dead in April. You have the Velvet Underground angle, and it, and it preserves the noisy part, which again, I'm just going to say it again, I think that's the best part of both of these shows, and it's not on the album. Yeah. That 40-minute run. Or I mean, I mean, do you think the second disc is too much like Live Dead, where it suffers in comparison? This is where I would maybe play the more interesting than good card. Because I'm really interested sort of academically in this alternative, alternate universe Live Dead that you have on this disc, basically. And there is one thing, like, it has one advantage over the Live Dead suite, which we'll get to. But I like having this comparison, even if pretty much every level of the comparison is like, well, this is like 90% as good as Live Dead. <laughs> like, it's, it's good, but it's like, you know, it's a B plus instead of an A plus. Um, but, it, you know, it, I think that's fascinating to compare that and think about like what is it that puts it gives it that extra 10% and puts it over the top on Live Dead that isn't is missing from here. But that's not like a emotional primal reaction to it. It's more of like my overthinking the dead <laughs> academic breakdown of it. Well, let's get to this because we have the 11 next and you you're you're big on this the 11. So this is actually not what I think is better than the Live Dead version, but I do think the 11 is the one part of this song suite that can go toe-to-toe with its Live Dead counterpart. Like, I think this 11 is equally as good as the 11 on Live Dead, which is a very high standard for me. I love this 11. I think it's great. I think it, again, and this is what I'm talking about, like, the difference between a very good version and a version where the band is just, like, on fire. You could do that with the 11 on this disc versus the 11 on the first disc, which I think is very good. And 69 dead playing the 11 is you're, you can't go wrong but this is one where they are just like the whole band is 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 firing on all cylinders they're just like they're they're really nailing it and i think they're nailing it here more so than disc one because it's in this familiar context of coming out of saint stephen where they can just launch right into it uh and they know what they're doing the other thing about this disc too is that you know what what we both love about the grateful dead is their group improvisation and their group dynamics this disc like live dead in some ways is just all about jerry it's just jerry soloing his ass off (laughs) through all four of these songs and being one of the greatest guitar players of all time if not the greatest and it peaks at least on this night in the 11 i think yeah i agree with that i I, and i'm with you on this being the closest to like the live dead Mm -hmm. standard and um, i actually like the 11 the version of the 11 from the uh first disc but yeah this is like Definitely taken up to a next level. It's a little bit longer, too, so they're, they're stretching out. And, yeah, the thing you said about Jerry, I'm with you 100%. This is like a Jerry sh- showcase, just shredding. And this is like uh, the peak of his shredding era. Yeah. You know, 68, 69, just him soloing in a way. Obviously, he was playing great guitar in the 70s, but it was a different approach 
it was an evolution that they had to take. If 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 they were just going to be a band where Jerry soloed all the time, I think they would have burned out yeah. much quicker. They became a again more. I say I keep saying nuanced band, but I think that's true. As they moved into the seventies, a band that could do a lot of different things well, um, and they were still in the process of I think figuring it out at this time. Um, the second love light. Do you have anything to say about the second love light? Uh, it, again, funny that they just start up the song again instead of like playing like the conclusion of the song. Though they do, they do get to the end of the song in the in this version with Pigpen and Bobby's sort of call and response. And I think actually the end, the ending here is really good. Like it's it feels a little extra drawn out, but it's just like a great exclamation point on this hour of music. But yeah, again, it's love light. So, you know, it. I find myself getting lost in it and I enjoy it, but it, I don't, I, I rarely come out of it with like insightful thoughts. It's just kind of like, yeah, that was fun. You know, I, I was tempted to do the bathroom break right here, but I didn't want to throw a match on a pool of gasoline. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's fine. I agree with you. I, I, I like the ending. I think the ending redeems it for me just because it feels like a little... Again, we already, we are, we've already had a Love Light. This completes our 35-minute run of, of, of Love Light here. But um, even with the Love Light fatigue, they still kind of bring it with a triumphant ending that, that pays off, I think, pretty well. And speaking of triumphant endings, we get to our last song, which is Morning Dew. And, I mean, look, it does what Morning Dew is supposed to do. It is a, uh, again, it's another great showcase for Jerry. And this is more of him and epic smoldering mode here i mean i'm trying to think of like a bad morning dew i'm sure there's been bad morning dews i don't think we've heard any just the nazareth one (laughs) yeah i'm dick's picks uh but yeah it's beautiful i mean come on it's jerry playing beautiful morning dew solos what more do you want This is the place where I would maybe give an edge to this disc over Live Dead. I love Death Don't Have No Mercy. I think it's awesome. I wish we had we haven't gotten one of those on a Dick's Picks yet. I would I oh, wish we no. could hear some of that. But honestly, if you swapped out that really interesting, fascinating fourth side of Live Dead, which is Death Have No Mercy Death Don't Have No Mercy into feedback into and we bid you good night. You could swap that out with like maybe Morning Dew and We Bid You Good Night maybe Live Dead is a little bit, is, is even better. I don't know. I'm of two minds about it because I like that you have that that feedbacky part represented on Live Dead. But anyway, this Morning Dew, it's not the greatest Morning Dew ever, but it's like an extremely good version. Very tidy. Great Jerry solos. I think maybe even better of like a come down ballad from Love Light than Death Don't Have No Mercy on Live Dead. But ask me again tomorrow and maybe I'd give, I'd go the other way on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I like Death Don't Have No Mercy just because it is, it's like a less performed song. It, it, it feels a little more unique to Live Dead. I mean, the Morning Dew from like Europe 72 is like pretty iconic. Right. We've heard a lot of Morning Dew, so I appreciate the uniqueness of, uh, of Death Don't Have No Mercy. But, you know, from a purely, I guess, like satisfaction standpoint, I mean, it's hard to argue with, you know, ending an, an album or a show with Morning Dew. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's just such, it just, like, it works. It just works every single time. <laughs> and even if you're like, oh, it's not the best. I mean, it's like pizza. I mean, every Morning Dew is great. You know, it's like it might, some more, some some Morning Dews might be spectacular. Some might be very good, but it it's satisfying just like pizza is every time you eat it. Right. So. Morning Dew is works. like pizza. I can't think of a better way to end. Yeah, what a great <laughs> this way to end this episode. <laughs> So a lot of a lot, a lot of fireworks. I think we delivered the fireworks that we were promising yeah. at the start. Well, some, some good. Uh, again, we're we're getting close to the end of the tour. Maybe we're getting a little prickly with each other. We're getting we're we'll certainly see. getting prickly with the Grateful Dead. I think, or <laughs> we're both a little Grateful Dead fatigued. Maybe at this point, I'm pretty psyched though for Dick's Picks 27. Yeah, I'm, I, this is like, and what have I been asking for <laughs> like this entire show? A silky crazy request. I've been asking to get silky, to get crazy. <laughs> Dix Picks has not responded. Yes. Finally, we're going to get silky and crazy uh, in uh, Dix Picks 27. It, I cannot wait. This this set it, list is bonkers. It also It's also delivering, though, some songs that I really love. Right. It's like a monkey's paw, almost. You have been demanding a feel like a stranger, and you're going to get it, but it's going to be a 1992 version, and it's going to be a show that also has... Maybe the worst encore we'll hear. I, I'm going to go out on a limb Ooh, and say that. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, it, we're really getting into interesting, <laughs> but not good <laughs> territory on that encore. <laughs> maybe, maybe this, maybe Dick's Picks 27 will be another contentious one. <laughs> early 90s Dead, which I love. I right. love early 90s Dead. Yeah. And wacky classic rock covers. I love. <laughs> yeah. So. Maybe it's going to be reversed. Like I'm going to be on the defensive in our next episode. So Good, yeah, that'll be fun. I can't wait to get into it. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Thirty Six from the Vault. We'll be back with Dick's Pick Twenty Seven in our next episode, season finale. See y'all later. <laughs> from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. 
So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.